RTE Podcasts present the RTE Players Complete Production of Ulysses by James Joyce, recorded in 1982. Episode 17, Ithaca. 2 a.m., 17th of June 1904, St. George's Church, Hardwick Place. What parallel courses did Bloom and Stephen follow returning? Starting united, both at normal walking pace from Beresford Place, they followed in the order named Lower and Middle Gardner Streets and Mountjoy Square West. Then, at reduced pace, each bearing left, Gardiner's Place, by an inadvertence as far as the farther corner of Temple Street North. Then, at reduced pace, with interruptions of halt, bearing right, Temple Street North, as far as Hardwick Place. Approaching, disparate, at relaxed walking pace, they crossed both the circus before George's church diametrically, the cord in any circle being less than the arc which it subtends. Of what did the duumvirate deliberate during their itinerary? Music, literature, Ireland, Dublin, Paris, friendship, woman, prostitution, diet, the influence of gaslight or the light of arc and glow lamps on the growth of adjoining paraheliotropic trees. Exposed corporation emergency dust buckets, the Roman Catholic Church, ecclesiastical celibacy, the Irish nation, Jesuit education, careers, the study of medicine, the past day, the malfeasant influence of the pre-Sabbath, Stephen's collapse. Did Bloom discover common factors of similarity between their respective like and unlike reactions to experience? Both were sensitive to artistic impressions, musical in preference to plastic or pictorial. Both preferred a continental to an insular manner of life, a cisatlantic to a transatlantic place of residence. Both, indurated by early domestic training and an inherited tenacity of heterodox resistance, professed their disbelief in many orthodox religious, national, social and ethical doctrines. Both admitted the alternately stimulating and obtunding influence of heterosexual magnetism. Were their views on some points divergent? Stephen dissented openly from Bloom's views on the importance of dietary and civic self-help, while Bloom dissented tacitly from Stephen's views on the eternal affirmation of the spirit of man in literature. Bloom assented covertly to Stephen's rectification of the anachronism involved in assigning the date of the conversion of the Irish nation to Christianity from Druidism by Patrick, son of Calpornus, son of Potitus, son of Idesus, sent by Pope Celestine I in the year 432 in the reign of Leary to the year 260 or thereabouts in the reign of Cormac MacArt, died 266 AD, suffocated by imperfect deglutition of aliment at Sletty and interred at Rosnaree. The collapse, which Bloom ascribed to gastric inanition and certain chemical compounds of varying degrees of adulteration and alcoholic strength, accelerated by mental exertion and the velocity of rapid circular motion in a relaxing atmosphere, Stephen attributed to the reapparition of the matutinal cloud, perceived by both from two different points of observation, Sandy Cove and Dublin, at first no bigger than a woman's hand. Was there one point on which their views were equal and negative? The influence of gaslight or electric light on the growth of adjoining paraheliotropic trees. Had Bloom discussed similar subjects during nocturnal perambulations in the past? 
1884, with Owen Goldberg and Cecil Turnbull, at night, on public thoroughfares between Longwood Avenue and Leonard's Corner, and Leonard's Corner and Sink Street, and Sink Street and Bloomfield Avenue. In 1885, with Percy Apjohn in the evenings, reclined against the wall between Gibraltar Villa and Bloomfield House in Crumlin, Barony of Uppercross. In 1886, occasionally with casual acquaintances and prospective purchasers on doorsteps, in front parlours, in third-class railway carriages of suburban lines. In 1888, frequently with Major Brian Tweedy and his daughter Miss Marion Tweedy, together and separately on the lounge in Matthew Dillon's house in Roundtown. Once in 1892 and once in 1893 with Julius Mastiansky on both occasions in the parlour of his Bloom's house in Lombard Street West. What reflection concerning the irregular sequence of dates 1884, 1885, 1886, 1888, 1892, 1893, 1904 did Bloom make before their arrival at their destination? He reflected that the progressive extension of the field of individual development and experience was regressively accompanied by a restriction of the converse domain of inter-individual relations. As in what ways? From inexistence to existence. He came to many and was as one received. Existence with existence, he was with any as any with any. From existence to non-existence gone, he would be by all as none perceived. What action did Bloom make on their arrival at their destination? At the house steps of the fourth of the equidifferent uneven numbers, number 7, Eccle Street, he inserted his hand mechanically into the back pocket of his trousers to obtain his latch key. Was it there? It was in the corresponding pocket of the trousers which he had worn on the day but one preceding. Why was he doubly irritated? Because he had forgotten and because he remembered that he had reminded himself twice not to forget. What were the then alternatives before the premeditatedly, respectively and inadvertently keyless couple? To enter or not to enter. To knock or not to knock. Bloom's decision? A stratagem. Resting his feet on the dwarf wall, he climbed over the area railings, compressed his hat on his head, grasped two points at the lower union of rails and stiles, lowered his body gradually by its length of five feet nine inches and a half to within two feet ten inches of the area pavement, and allowed his body to move freely in space by separating himself from the railings and crouching in preparation for the impact of the fall. Did he fall? By his body's known weight of 11 stone and 4 pounds in average measure, as certified by the graduated machine for periodical self-weighing in the premises of Francis Friedman, pharmaceutical chemist of 19 Frederick Street North, on the last feast day of the ascension, to wit, the 12th day of May of the bisectile year 1904 of the Christian era, Jewish era 5664, Mohammedan era 1322. Golden number 5, EPACT 13, Solar Cycle 9, Dominical Letters CB, Roman Indication 2, Julian Period 6617MXMIV. Did he rise uninjured by concussion? Regaining new stable equilibrium, he rose uninjured, though concussed by the impact, 
raise the latch of the area door by the exertion of force at its freely moving flange, and by leverage of the first kind applied at its fulcrum, gained retarded access to the kitchen through the subadjacent scullery, ignited a lucifer match by friction, set free inflammable coal gas by turning on the vent cock, lit a high flame which, by regulating, he reduced to quiescent candescence, and lit finally a portable candle. What discreet succession of images did Stephen meanwhile perceive? Reclined against the area railings, he perceived through the transparent kitchen panes a man regulating a gas flame of 14 CP, a man lighting a candle, a man removing in turn each of his two boots, a man leaving the kitchen holding a candle of 1 CP. Did the man reappear elsewhere? After a lapse of four minutes, the glimmer of his candle was discernible through the semi-transparent semicircular glass fanlight over the hall door. The hall door turned gradually on its hinges. In the open space of the doorway, the man reappeared without his hat, with his candle. Did Stephen obey his sign? Yes. Entering softly, he helped to close and chain the door, and followed softly along the hallway the man's back and listed feet and lighted candle, past a lighted crevice of doorway on the left, and carefully down a turning staircase of more than five steps into the kitchen of Bloom's house. What did Bloom do? He extinguished the candle by a sharp expiration of breath upon its flame, drew two spoon-seat deal chairs to the hearthstone, one for Stephen with its back to the area window, the other for himself when necessary, knelt on one knee, composed in the grate a pyre of cross-laid, resin-tipped sticks and various coloured papers and irregular polygons of best Abram coal at 21 shillings a tonne from the yard of Messrs. Flower and MacDonald of 14 Delir Street, kindled it at three projecting points of paper with one ignited lucifer match, thereby releasing the potential energy contained in the fuel by allowing its carbon and hydrogen elements to enter into free union with the oxygen of the air. Of what similar apparitions did Stephen think? Of others elsewhere in other times who, kneeling on one knee or on two, had kindled fires for him. Of Brother Michael in the infirmary of the College of the Society of Jesus at Clongo's Wood, Salance, in the county of Kildare, of his father, Simon Dedalus, in an unfurnished room of his first residence in Dublin, number 13 Fitzgibbon Street, of his godmother, Miss Kate Morkan, in the house of her dying sister, Miss Julia Morkan, at 15 Usher's Island, of his mother Mary, wife of Simon Dedalus, in the kitchen of number 12 North Richmond Street, on the morning of the feast of St. Francis Saviour, 1898, of the Dean of Studies, Father Butt, in the Physics Theatre of University College, 16 Stevens Green North, of his sister Dilly, Delia, in his father's house in Cabra. What did Stephen see on raising his gaze to the height of a yard from the fire towards the opposite wall? Under a row of five-coiled spring-house bells, a curvilinear rope, stretched between two holdfasts athwart across the recess beside the chimney pier, from which hung four small-sized square handkerchiefs folded unattached consecutively in adjacent rectangles, and one pair of ladies' grey hose with lyle suspender tops and feet in their habitual position, clamped by three erect wooden pegs, two at their outer extremities and the third at their point of junction. What did Bloom see on the range? On the right, smaller hob, a blue enamelled saucepan. On the left, larger hob, a black iron kettle. 
What did Bloom do at the range? He removed the saucepan to the left hob, rose and carried the iron kettle to the sink in order to tap the current by turning the faucet to let it flow. Did it flow? Yes. From Roundwood Reservoir in County Wicklow of a cubic capacity of 2,400 million gallons, percolating through a subterranean aqueduct of filter mains of single and double pipage constructed at an initial plant cost of £5 per linear yard, by way of the Dargle, Rathdown, Glen of the Downs and Callow Hill to the 26-acre reservoir at Stillorgan, a distance of 22 statute miles, and thence through a system of relieving tanks by a gradient of 250 feet to the city boundary at Eustace Bridge, Upper Leeson Street. Though from prolonged summer drought, the daily supply of 12.5 million gallons, the water had fallen below the sill of the overflow weir, for which reason the borough surveyor and waterworks engineer, Mr Spencer Harty C.E., on the instructions of the Waterworks Committee, had prohibited the use of municipal water for purposes other than those of consumption, envisaging the possibility of recourse being had to the impotable water of the Grand and Royal Canals, as in 1893. Particularly as the South Dublin Guardians, notwithstanding their ration of 15 gallons per day per pauper, supplied through a six-inch metre, had been convicted of a wastage of 20,000 gallons per night by a reading of their metre on the affirmation of the law agent of the corporation, Mr Ignatius Rice Solicitor, thereby acting to the detriment of another section of the public, self-supporting taxpayers, solvent, sound. What in water did Bloom, water lover, drawer of water, water carrier returning to the range, admire? Its universality, its democratic equality and constancy to its nature in seeking its own level, its vastness in the ocean of Mercator's projection, its unplumbed profundity in the sun-damned trench of the Pacific exceeding 8,000 fathoms, the restlessness of its waves and surface particles visiting in turn all points of its seaboard, the independence of its units, the variability of states of sea, its hydrostatic quiescence in calm, its hydrokinetic turgidity in neap and spring tides, its subsidence after devastation, its sterility in the circumpolar ice caps, Arctic and Antarctic, its climatic and commercial significance, its preponderance of three to one over the dry land of the globe its indisputable hegemony extending in square leagues over all the region below the sub-equatorial tropic of Capricorn, the multi-secular stability of its primeval basin, its lutofulvous bed, its capacity to dissolve and hold in solution all soluble substances, including millions of tons of the most precious metals, its slow erosions of peninsulas and downward-tending promontories, its alluvial deposits, its weight and volume and density, its imperturbability in lagoons and highland tarns, its gradation of colours in the torrid and temperate and frigid zones, its vehicular ramifications in continental lake-contained streams and confluent ocean-flowing rivers with their tributaries and transoceanic currents, gulf stream, north and south equatorial courses, its violence in sea-quakes, water-spouts, artesian wells, eruptions, torrents, eddies, freshets, spates, ground-swells, watersheds, water-partings, geysers, cataracts, whirlpools, maelstroms, inundations, deluges, cloudbursts. Its vast, circumterrestrial, a horizontal curve. Its secrecy in springs and latent humidity revealed by rhabdomantic and hygrometric instruments and exemplified by the hole in the wall at Ashtown Gate, saturation of air, distillation of dew, 
the simplicity of its composition, two constituent parts of hydrogen and one constituent part of oxygen. Its healing virtues, its buoyancy in the waters of the Dead Sea, its persevering penetrativeness in runnels, gullies, inadequate dams, leaks on shipboard, its properties for cleansing, quenching thirst and fire, nourishing vegetation, its infallibility as paradigm and paragon, its metamorphosis as vapour, mist, cloud, rain, sleet, snow, hail, its strength in rigid hydrants, its variety of forms in locks and bays and gulfs and bites and guts and lagoons and atolls and archipelagos and sounds and fjords and minches and tidal estuaries and arms of sea, its solidity in glaciers, icebergs, ice flows, its docility in working hydraulic mill wheels, turbines, dynamos, electric power stations, bleach works, tanneries, scutch mills, its utility in canals, rivers if navigable, floating and graving docks, its potentiality derivable from harness tides or watercourses falling from level to level, its submarine fauna and flora, an acoustic photophobe, numerically if not literally the inhabitants of the globe, its ubiquity as constituting 90% of the human body, the noxiousness of its effluvia in lacustrine marshes, pestilential fens, faded flower water, stagnant pools in the waning moon, Having set the half-filled kettle on the now-burning coals, why did he return to the still-flowing tap? To wash his soiled hands with a partially consumed tablet of Barrington's lemon-flavoured soap, to which paper still adhered, bought thirteen hours previously for fourpence and still unpaid for, in fresh, cold, never-changing, ever-changing water, and dry them, face and hands, in a long, red-bordered holland cloth passed over a wooden revolving roller. What reason did Stephen give for declining Bloom's offer? That he was hydrophobe, hating partial contact by immersion or total by submersion in cold water, his last bath having taken place in the month of October of the preceding year, disliking the aqueous substances of glass and crystal, distrusting aquacities of thought and language. What impeded Bloom from giving Stephen counsels of hygiene and prophylactic, to which should be added suggestions concerning a preliminary wetting of the head and contraction of the muscles, with rapid splashing of the face and neck and thoracic and epigastric region in the case of sea or river bathing, the parts of the human anatomy most sensitive to cold being the nape, stomach and thenar or sole of foot. The incompatibility of aquacity with the erratic originality of genius. What additional didactic counsels did he similarly repress? Dietary, concerning the respective percentage of protein and caloric energy in bacon, salt, ling and butter, the absence of the former in the last named and the abundance of the latter in the first named. Which seemed to the host to be the predominant qualities of his guest? Confidence in himself, an equal and opposite power of abandonment and recuperation. What concomitant phenomenon took place in the vessel of liquid by the agency of fire? The phenomenon of ebullition. Fanned by a constant updraft of ventilation between the kitchen and the chimney flue, ignition was communicated from the faggots of pre-combustible fuel to polyhedral masses of bituminous coal, containing in compressed mineral form the foliated fossilised decidua of primeval forests, which had in turn derived their vegetative existence from the sun, primal source of heat, radiant, transmitted through omnipresent luminiferous diathermous ether. Heat, convected, a mode of motion developed by such combustion was constantly and increasingly conveyed from the source of calorification to the liquid contained in the vessel being radiated through the uneven, unpolished, dark surface in part reflected, in part absorbed, in part transmitted, gradually raising the temperature of the water from normal to boiling point, 
a rise in temperature expressible as a result of an expenditure of 72 thermal units needed to raise one pound of water from 50 degrees to 212 degrees Fahrenheit. What announced the accomplishment of this rise in temperature? A double falciform ejection of water vapour from under the kettle lid at both sides simultaneously. For what personal purpose could Bloom have applied the water so boiled? To shave himself. What advantages attended shaving by night? A softer beard, a softer brush if intentionally allowed to remain from shave to shave in its agglutinated lather, a softer skin if unexpectedly encountering female acquaintances in remote places at incustomary hours. Quiet reflections upon the course of the day. A cleaner sensation when awaking after a fresher sleep, since matutinal noises, premonitions and perturbations, a clattered milk can, a postman's double knock, a paper read, re-read while lathering, re-lathering the same spot, a shock, a shoot, with thought of aught he sought, though fraught with naught, might cause a faster rate of shaving, and a nick on which incision plaster, with precision cut and humected and applied, adhered, which was to be done. Why did absence of light disturb him less than presence of noise? Because of the surety of the sense of touch in his firm, full, masculine, feminine, passive, active hand. What quality did it, his hand, possess, but with what counteracting influence? The operative surgical quality, but that he was reluctant to shed human blood, even when the end justified the means, preferring in their natural order heliotherapy, psychophysiotherapeutics, osteopathic surgery. What lay under exposure on the lower, middle and upper shelves of the kitchen dresser opened by Bloom? On the lower shelf, five vertical breakfast plates, six horizontal breakfast saucers on which rested inverted breakfast cups, a moustache cup uninverted and saucer of Crown Derby, four white gold-rimmed egg cups, an open chamois purse displaying coins, mostly copper, and a file of aromatic violet comfits. On the middle shelf, a chipped egg cup containing pepper a drum of table salt, four conglomerated black olives in oleogenous paper, an empty pot of plum trees potted meat, an oval wicker basket bedded with fibre and containing one jersey pear, a half-empty bottle of William Gilby and Co.'s white invalid port, half disrobed of its swathe of coral pink tissue paper, a packet of Epps soluble cocoa, five ounces of Anne Lynch's choice tea at two shillings per pound, in a crinkled lead paper bag, a cylindrical canister containing the best crystallised lump sugar, two onions, one the larger Spanish, entire, the other smaller, Irish, bisected with augmented surface and more redolent, a jar of Irish model dairy's cream, a jug of brown crockery containing a noggin and a quarter of soured adulterated milk converted by heat into water, acidulous serum, and semi-solidified curds, which, added to the quantity subtracted from Mr. Bloom and Mrs. Fleming's breakfasts, made one imperial pint. The total quantity originally delivered. Two cloves, a halfpenny, and a small dish containing a slice of fresh rib steak. On the upper shelf, a battery of jam jars of various sizes and provenances. What attracted his attention lying on the apron of the dresser? Four polygonal fragments of two lacerated scarlet betting tickets numbered 887-886. What reminiscences temporarily corrugated his brow? Reminiscences of coincidences, truth stranger than fiction, pre-indicative of the result of the gold cup flat handicap, the official and definitive result of which he had read in the evening telegraph, late pink edition, in the cabman's shelter at Buttbridge. Where had previous intimations of the result affected or projected been received by him? In Bernard Kiernan's licensed premises, 8, 9 and 10 Little Britain Street. In David Byrne's licensed premises, 14 Duke Street. In O'Connell Street Lower, outside Graham Lemons, when a dark man had placed in his hand a throwaway.
subsequently thrown away, advertising Elijah, restorer of the church in Zion. In Lincoln Place, outside the premises of F.W. Sweeney and Co. Limited, dispensing chemists, when, when Frederick M. Bantam Lyons had rapidly and successively requested, perused and restituted the copy of the current issue of the Freeman's Journal and National Press, which he had been about to throw away, subsequently thrown away, he had proceeded towards the oriental edifice of the Turkish and Warm Baths, 11 Leinster Street, with the light of inspiration shining in his countenance and bearing in his arms the secret of the race, graven in the language of prediction. What qualifying considerations allayed his perturbations? The difficulties of interpretation, since the significance of any event followed its occurrence, as variably as the acoustic report followed the electrical discharge, and of counterestimating against an actual loss by failure to interpret the total sum of possible losses proceeding originally from a successful interpretation. His mood? He had not risked. He did not expect. He had not been disappointed. He was satisfied. What satisfied him? To have sustained no positive loss, to have brought a positive gain to others, light to the Gentiles. How did Bloom prepare a collation for a Gentile? He poured into two teacups two level spoonfuls, four in all, of Epps-soluble cocoa, and proceeded according to the directions for use printed on the label, to each adding, after sufficient time for infusion, the prescribed ingredients for diffusion in the manner and in the quantity prescribed. What supererogatory marks of special hospitality did the host show his guest? Relinquishing his symposiacal right to the moustache cup of imitation crown derby presented to him by his only daughter, Millicent, Millie, he substituted a cup identical with that of his guest and served, extraordinary to his guest and in reduced measure to himself, the viscous cream ordinarily reserved for the breakfast of his wife, Marion, Molly. Was the guest conscious of, and did he acknowledge these marks of hospitality? His attention was directed to them by his host, jocosely, and he accepted them seriously as they drank, in joco-serious silence, Epps mass product, the creature Coco. Were there marks of hospitality which he contemplated but suppressed, reserving them for another and for himself on future occasions to complete the act begun? The reparation of a fissure of the length of one and a half inches in the right side of his guest's jacket a gift to his guest of one of the four ladies' handkerchiefs, if and when ascertained to be in a presentable condition. Who drank more quickly? Bloom, having the advantage of ten seconds at the initiation and taking, from the concave surface of a spoon along the handle of which a steady flow of heat was conducted, three sips to his opponent's one, six to two, nine to three. What celebration accompanied his frequentative act? Concluding by inspection, but erroneously, that his silent companion was engaged in mental composition, he reflected on the pleasures derived from literature, of instruction rather than of amusement, as he himself had applied to the works of William Shakespeare more than once for the solution of difficult problems in imaginary or real life. Had he found their solution? In spite of careful and repeated reading of certain classical passages aided by a glossary, he had derived imperfect conviction from the text the answers not bearing on all points. What lines concluded his first piece of original verse written by him, potential poet, at the age of 11 in 1877, on the occasion of the offering of three prizes of ten shillings, five shillings and two and sixpence respectively by the Shamrock, a weekly newspaper? An ambition to squint at my verses in print makes me hope that for these you'll find room. If you so condescend, then please place at the end the name of yours truly, L. Bloom. Did he find four separating forces between his temporary guest and him? Name, age, race, creed. What anagrams had he made on his name in youth? Leopold Bloom.
El Podbamul, Moldoloop, Bolopedum, Old Olibo, MP. What acrostic upon the abbreviation of his first name had he, kinetic poet, sent to Miss Marian Tweedy on the 14th of February, 1888? Poets oft have sung in rhyme of music sweet, their praise divine. Let them hymn it nine times nine. Dearer far than song or wine, you are mine, the world is mine. What had prevented him from completing a topical song, music by R.G. Johnston, on the events of the past or fixtures for the actual years, entitled If Brian Boru Could But Come Back and See Old Dublin Now, commissioned by Michael Gunn, lessee of the Gaiety Theatre, 46, 47, 48, 49 South King Street, and to be introduced into the sixth scene, The Valley of Diamonds, of the second edition, 30th of January, 1893, of the grand annual Christmas pantomime, Sinbad the Sailor. Written by Greenleaf Whittier, scenery by George A. Jackson and Cecil Hicks, costumes by Mrs. and Miss Whelan, produced by R. Shelton, 26th December 1892, under the personal supervision of Mrs. Michael Gunn, ballets by Jessie Noir, harlequinade by Thomas Otto, and sung by Nellie Boverist, Principal Girl. Firstly, oscillation between events of imperial and of local interest. The anticipated Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria, born 1820, acceded 1837, and the post-anticipated opening of the new municipal fish market. Secondly, apprehension of opposition from extreme circles on the questions of the respective visits of their Royal Highnesses the Duke and Duchess of York, real, and of His Majesty King Brian Boru, imaginary. Thirdly, a conflict between professional etiquette and professional emulation concerning the recent erections of the Grand Lyric Hall on Burg Quay and the Theatre Royal in Hawkins Street. Fourthly, Distraction, resultant from the compassion for Nellie Boverist's non-intellectual, non-political, non-topical expression of countenance and concupiscence caused by Nellie Boverist's revelations of white articles of non-intellectual, non-political, non-topical underclothing while she, Nellie Boverist, was in the articles. Fifthly, the difficulties of the selection of appropriate music and humorous allusions from everybody's book of jokes, 1,000 pages and a laugh in every one. Sixthly, the rhymes, homophonous and cacophonous, associated with the names of the new Lord Mayor, Daniel Tallon, the new High Sheriff, Thomas Pyle, and the new Solicitor General, Dunbar Plunkett Barton. What relation existed between their ages? Sixteen years before, in 1888, when Bloom was of Stephen's present age, Stephen was six. Sixteen years after, in 1920, when Stephen would be of Bloom's present age, Bloom would be fifty-four. In 1936, when Bloom would be 70 and Stephen 54, their ages initially in the ratio of 16 to naught would be as 17 and a half to 13 and a half, the proportion increasing and the disparity diminishing according as arbitrary future years were added. For if the proportion existing in 1883 had continued immutable, conceiving that to be possible, till then, 1904, when Stephen was 22, Bloom would be 374, and in 1920, when Stephen would be 38, as Bloom then was, Bloom would be 646. While in 1952, when Stephen would have attained the maximum post age of 70, 
Bloom, being 1190 years alive, having been born in the year 714, would have surpassed by 221 years the maximum antediluvian age, that of Methuselah, 969 years, while if Stephen would continue to live until he would attain that age in the year 3072 AD, Bloom would have been obliged to have been alive 83,300 years, having been obliged to have been born in the year 81,396 BC. What events might nullify these calculations? The cessation of existence of both or either, the inauguration of a new era or calendar, the annihilation of the world and consequent extermination of the human species, inevitable but impredictable. How many previous encounters proved their pre-existing acquaintance? Two. The first in the lilac garden of Matthew Dillon's house, Medina Villa Kimmage Road, Round Town, in 1887, in the company of Stephen's mother, Stephen being then of the age of five and reluctant to give his hand in salutation. The second in the coffee room of Breslin's Hotel on a rainy Sunday in the January of 1892, in the company of Stephen's father and Stephen's granduncle, Stephen being then five years older. Did Bloom accept the invitation to dinner given then by the son and afterwards seconded by the father? Very gratefully, with grateful appreciation, with sincere appreciative gratitude, in appreciatively grateful sincerity of regret, he declined. Did their conversation on the subject of these reminiscences reveal a third connecting link between them? Mrs Reardon, a widow of independent means, had resided in the house of Stephen's parents from the 1st of September 1888 to the 29th of December 1891 and had also resided during the years 1892, 1893 and 1894 in the City Arms Hotel owned by Elizabeth O'Dowd of 54 Prussia Street where during parts of the years 1893 and 1894 she had been a constant informant of Bloom who resided also in the same hotel being at that time a clerk in the employment of Joseph Cuff of Five Smithfield for the superintendence of sales in the adjacent Dublin cattle market on the North Circular Road. Had he performed any special corporal work of mercy for her? He had sometimes propelled her on warm summer evenings, an infirm widow of independent, if limited, means, in her convalescent bath chair, with slow revolutions of its wheels as far as the corner of the North Circular Road opposite Mr Gavin Lowe's place of business, where she had remained for a certain time, scanning through his one-lensed binocular field glasses unrecognisable citizens on tramcars, roadster bicycles, equipped with inflated pneumatic tyres, hackney carriages, tandems, private and hired landors, dog carts, pony traps and brakes, passing from the city to the Phoenix Park and vice versa. Why could he then support that, his vigil, with the greater equanimity? Because in middle youth he had often sat observing through a rondel of bossed glass of a multicoloured pane, the spectacle offered, with continual changes of the thoroughfare without, pedestrians, quadrupeds, velocipedes, vehicles, passing slowly, quickly, evenly, round and round and round the rim of a round, precipitous globe. What distinct, different memories had each of her now eight years deceased? The older... Her bezique cards and counters, her sky terrier, her suppositious wealth, her lapses of responsiveness and incipient catarrhal deafness. The younger, her lamp of colza oil before the statue of the Immaculate Conception, her green and maroon brushes for Charles Stuart Parnell and for Michael Davitt, her tissue papers. Were there no means still remaining to him to achieve the rejuvenation which these reminiscences divulged to a younger companion rendered the more desirable? 
The indoor exercises, formerly intermittently practised, subsequently abandoned, prescribed in Eugene Sandow's Physical Strength and How to Obtain It, which, designed particularly for commercial men engaged in sedentary occupations, were to be made with mental concentration in front of a mirror so as to bring into play the various families of muscles and produce successively a pleasant relaxation and the most pleasant representation of juvenile agility. Had any special agility been his in earlier youth? Though ring-weight lifting had been beyond his strength and the full-circle gyration beyond his courage, yet as a high school scholar he had excelled in his stable and protracted execution of the half-lever movement on the parallel bars in consequence of his abnormally developed abdominal muscles. Did either openly allude to their racial difference? Neither. What, reduced to their simplest reciprocal form, were Bloom's thoughts about Stephen's thoughts about Bloom and Bloom's thoughts about Stephen's thoughts about Bloom's thoughts about Stephen? He thought that he thought that he was a Jew, whereas he knew that he knew that he knew that he was not. What the enclosures of reticence removed were their respective parentages. Bloom, only born male transubstantial heir of Rudolf Virag, subsequently Rudolf Bloom, of Zambathli, Vienna, Budapest, Milan, London and Dublin and of Ellen Higgins, second daughter of Julius Higgins, born Caroli, and Fanny Higgins, born Hegarty. Stephen, eldest surviving male consubstantial heir of Simon Dedalus of Cork and Dublin, and of Mary, daughter of Richard and Christina Goulding, born Greer. Had Bloom and Stephen been baptised, and where and by whom, cleric or layman? Bloom, three times, by the Reverend Mr. Gilmer Johnson, M.A., alone in the Protestant Church of St. Nicholas without Coombe by James O'Connor, Philip Gilligan and James Fitzpatrick together under a pump in the village of Swords and by the Reverend Charles Malone, C.C. in the Church of the Three Patrons, Rathgar. Stephen once by the Reverend Charles Malone, C.C. alone in the Church of the Three Patrons, Rathgar. Did they find their educational careers similar? Substituting Stephen for Bloom, Stoom would have passed successively through a dame school and the high school. Substituting Bloom for Stephen... Bleven would have passed successively through the preparatory, junior, middle and senior grades of the intermediate and through the matriculation, first arts, second arts and arts degree course of the Royal University. Why did Bloom refrain from stating that he had frequented the University of Life? Because of his fluctuating incertitude as to whether this observation had or had not been already made by him to Stephen or by Stephen to him. What two temperaments did they individually represent? The scientific. The artistic. What proofs did Bloom adduce to prove that his tendency was towards applied rather than towards pure science? Certain possible inventions of which he had cogitated when reclining in a state of supine repletion to aid digestion, stimulated by his appreciation of the importance of inventions now common but once revolutionary. For example, the aeronautic parachute, the reflecting telescope, the spiral corkscrew, the safety pin, the mineral water siphon, the canal lock with winch and sluice, the suction pump. Were these inventions principally intended for an improved scheme of kindergarten? Yes, rendering obsolete pop guns, elastic air bladders, games of hazard, catapults. They comprised astronomical kaleidoscopes exhibiting the twelve constellations of zodiac from Aries to Pisces, miniature mechanical orreries, arithmetical gelatine lozenges, geometrical to correspond with zoological biscuits, globe map playing balls, historically costumed dolls. 
What also stimulated him in his cogitations? The financial success achieved by Ephraim Marx and Charles A. James, the former by his Penny Bazaar at 42 Georgia Street South, the latter at his Sixpence Halfpenny Shop and World's Fancy Fair and Waxwork Exhibition at 30 Henry Street, admission two pence, children a penny, and the infinite possibilities hitherto unexploited of the modern art of advertisement if condensed in triliteral monoidal symbols vertically of maximum visibility divined horizontally of maximum legibility deciphered and of magnetizing efficacy to arrest involuntary attention to interest to convince to decide such as k11 keynote's 11 shilling trousers house of keys alexander j keys such as not Look at this long candle. Calculate when it burns out and you receive gratis one pair of our special non-compo boots, guaranteed one candle power. Address, Barclay & Cook, 18 Talbot Street. Basilic Hill, insect powder. Very best boot blacking. You want it. Combined pocket two-blade penknife with corkscrew, nail file and pipe cleaner. Such as never. What is home without plum trees potted meat? Incomplete. With it, an abode of bliss, manufactured by George Plumtree, 23 Merchants Quay, Dublin, put up in four-ounce pots and inserted by Councillor Joseph P. Nanetti, MP, Rotunda Ward, 19 Hardwick Street, under the obituary notices and anniversaries of deceases. The name on the label is Plumtree. A Plumtree is a meat pot, registered trademark. Beware of imitations. Peat Mott, Trumpley, Montpat, Plumtrue. Which example did he adduce to induce Stephen to deduce that originality, though producing its own reward, does not invariably conduce to success? His own ideated and rejected project of an illuminated show cart drawn by a beast of burden in which two smartly dressed girls were to be seated engaged in writing. What suggested scene was then constructed by Stephen? Solitary hotel in Mountain Pass. Autumn. Twilight. Fire lit. In dark corner, young man seated. Young woman enters, restless, solitary. She sits. She goes to window. She stands. She sits. Twilight. She thinks. On solitary hotel paper, she writes. She thinks. She writes. She sighs. Wheels and hoofs. She hurries out. He comes from his dark corner. He seizes solitary paper. He holds it towards fire. Twilight. He reads. Solitary. What? In sloping, upright and back hands. Queen's Hotel. Queen's Hotel. Queen's Ho... What suggested scene was then reconstructed by Bloom? The Queen's Hotel, Ennis County Clare, where Rudolph Bloom, Rudolph Virag, died on the evening of the 27th June, 1886, at some hour unstated, in consequence of an overdose of monkshood, aconite, self-administered in the form of a neuralgic liniment, composed of two parts of aconite liniment to one of chloroform liniment, purchased by him at 10.20am on the morning of 27th June 1886 at the Medical Hall of Francis Dennehy, 17 Church Street, Ennis, after having, though not in consequence of having purchased at 3.15pm on the afternoon of 27th June 1886, a new boater straw hat, extra smart, after having, though not in consequence of having purchased at the hour and in the place aforesaid the toxin aforesaid, at the general drapery store of James Cullen, 4 Main Street, Ennis. Did he attribute this homonymity to information or coincidence or intuition? Coincidence. Did he depict the scene verbally for his guest to see? 
He preferred himself to see another's face and listen to another's words by which potential narration was realised and kinetic temperament relieved. Did he see only a second coincidence in the second scene narrated to him, described by the narrator as a pisca sight of Palestine or the parable of the plums? It, with the preceding scene and with others unnarrated but existent by implication, to which add essays on various subjects or moral apothegms, e.g. my favourite hero or procrastination is the thief of time, composed during school years, seemed to him to contain in itself and in conjunction with the personal equation certain possibilities of financial, social, personal and sexual success, whether specially collected and selected as model pedagogic themes of cent per cent merit for the use of preparatory and junior grade students or contributed in printed form following the precedent of Philip Beaufoy or Dr Dick or Heblon Studies in Blue to a publication of certified circulation and solvency or employed verbally as intellectual stimulation for sympathetic auditors, tacitly appreciative of successful narrative and confidently augurative of successful achievement during the increasingly longer nights gradually following the summer solstice on the day but three following, videlicit Tuesday, 21st June, St. Aloysius Gonzaga, sunrise 3.33am, sunset 8.29pm. Which domestic problem as much as, if not more than, any other frequently engaged his mind? What to do with our wives? What had been his hypothetical singular solutions? Parlour games. Dominoes, Halma, Tiddlywinks, Spillikins, Cup and Ball. Nap. Spoil five, Bezique, twenty-five, Beggar me neighbour, draughts, chess or backgammon. Embroidery. Darning or knitting for the police-aided clothing society. Musical duets, mandolin and guitar, piano and flute, guitar and piano, legal scrivenry or envelope addressing. Bi-weekly visits to variety entertainments. Commercial activity, as pleasantly commanding and pleasingly obeyed mistress proprietress, in a cool dairy shop or warm cigar divan. The clandestine satisfaction of erotic irritation in masculine brothels, state inspected and medically controlled. Social visits at regular, infrequent, prevented intervals and with regular, frequent, preventive superintendents to and from female acquaintances of recognised respectability in the vicinity. Courses of evening instruction specially designed to render liberal instruction agreeable. What instances of deficient mental development in his wife inclined him in favour of the last-mentioned ninth solution? In disoccupied moments, she had more than once covered a sheet of paper with signs and hieroglyphics which she stated were Greek and Irish and Hebrew characters. She had interrogated constantly at various intervals as to the correct method of writing the capital initial of the name of a city in Canada, Quebec. She understood little of political complications, internal or balance of power external. In calculating the addenda of bills, she frequently had recourse to digital aid. After completion of laconic epistolary compositions, she abandoned the implement of calligraphy in the encaustic pigment exposed to the corrosive action of copperas, green vitriol and nutgall. Unusual polysyllables of foreign origin she interpreted phonetically, or by false analogy, or by both. Metempsychosis. Metempycoses. Alias, a mendacious person mentioned in sacred scripture. What compensated in the false balance of her intelligence for these and such deficiencies of judgment regarding persons, places and things? The false apparent parallelism of all perpendicular arms of all balances proved true by construction. The counterbalance of her proficiency of judgment regarding one person proved true by experiment. 
How had he attempted to remedy this state of comparative ignorance? Variously, by leaving in a conspicuous place a certain book open at a certain page, by assuming in her, when alluding explanatorily, latent knowledge, by open ridicule in her presence of some absent other's ignorant lapse. With what success had he attempted direct instruction? She followed not at all. A part of the whole gave attention with interest, comprehended with surprise, with care repeated, with greater difficulty remembered, forgot with ease, with misgiving re-remembered, re-repeated with error. What system had proved more effective? Indirect suggestion implicating self-interest. Example? She disliked umbrella with rain. He liked woman with umbrella. She disliked new hat with rain. He liked woman with new hat. He bought new hat with rain. She carried umbrella with new hat. Accepting the analogy implied in his guest's parable, which examples of post-exilic eminence did he adduce? Three seekers of the pure truth. Moses of Egypt, Moses Maimonides, author of Mornupkim, Guide of the Perplexed, and Moses Mendelssohn, of such eminence that from Moses of Egypt to Moses Mendelssohn there arose none like Moses Maimonides. What statement was made under correction by Bloom concerning a fourth seeker of pure truth by name Aristotle, mentioned with permission by Stephen? That the seeker mentioned had been a pupil of a rabbinical philosopher name uncertain. Were other anapocryphal illustrious sons of the law and children of a selected or rejected race mentioned? Felix Bartholdi Mendelssohn, composer, Baruch Spinoza philosopher, Mendoza pugilist, Ferdinand Lassalle, reformer, dualist. What fragments of verse from the ancient Hebrew and ancient Irish languages were cited, with modulations of voice and translation of texts by guest to host and by host to guest? By Stephen, Shul, 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 Arun, Shul, Gasoker, August, Shul, Gokun. Walk, walk, walk your way, walk in safety, walk with care. By Bloom, Kifeloch, Harimon, Rachetech, Mebad, Leit, Samatech. Thy temple amid thy hair is as a slice of pomegranate. How was a glyphic comparison of the phonic symbols of both languages made in substantiation of the oral comparison? On the penultimate blank page of a book of inferior literary style entitled Sweets of Sin, produced by Bloom and so manipulated that its front cover came in contact with the surface of the table. With a pencil supplied by Stephen, Stephen wrote the Irish characters for G, E, D, M, simple and modified, and Bloom in turn wrote the Hebrew characters Gimel, Aleph, Daleth, and in the absence of Mem, as substituted Goff, explaining their arithmetical values as ordinal and cardinal numbers, videlicit 3, 1, 4, and 100. Was the knowledge possessed by both of each of these languages, the extinct and the revived, theoretical or practical? Theoretical, being confined to certain grammatical rules of accidents and syntax, and practically excluding vocabulary. What points of contact existed between these languages and between the peoples who spoke them? The presence of guttural sounds, diacritic aspirations, epithetic and servile letters in both languages, their antiquity, both having been taught on the plain of Shinar 242 years after the deluge in the seminary instituted by Phineas Farse, descendant of Noah, progenitor of Israel, and ascendant of Heber and Harimon, progenitors of Ireland. Their archaeological, genealogical, hagiographical, exegetical, homilectic, toponomastic, historical and religious literatures, comprising the works of rabbis and kuldis, Torah, Talmud, Mishnah and Gemara, Masol, Pentateuch, Book of the Dan Cow, Book of Ballymote, Garland of Hoth, Book of Kells. 
Their dispersal, persecution, survival and revival. The isolation of their synagogical and ecclesiastical rites in Ghetto, S. Mary's Abbey, and Mass House, Adam and Eve's Tavern. The proscription of their national costumes in penal laws and Jewish dress acts. The restoration in Canaan, David of Zion, and the possibility of Irish political autonomy or devolution. What anthem did Bloom chant partially in anticipation of that multiple, ethnically irreductible consummation? Kolod balevav penima nefech Yehudi homiya. Why was the chant arrested at the conclusion of this first distich? In consequence of defective memotechnic. How did the chanter compensate for this deficiency? By a periphrastic version of the general text. In what common study did their mutual reflections merge? The increasing simplification traceable from the Egyptian epigraphic hieroglyphs to the Greek and Roman alphabets and the anticipation of modern stenography and telegraphic code in the cuneiform inscriptions, Semitic, and the Virgilur quinquecostate, Oum writing, Celtic. Did the guest comply with his host's request? Doubly, by appending his signature in Irish and Roman characters. What was Stephen's auditive sensation? He heard in a profound, ancient, male, unfamiliar melody the accumulation of the past. What was Bloom's visual sensation? He saw in a quick, young, male, familiar form the predestination of a future. What were Stephen's and Bloom's quasi-simultaneous volitional quasi-sensations of concealed identities? Visually, Stephen's... The traditional figure of hypostasis, depicted by Johann Damascenus, Lentulus Romanus and Epiphanes Monachus as leucodermic, sesquipedalian with wine-dark hair. Auditively, Bloom's the traditional accent of the ecstasy of catastrophe. What future careers had been possible for Bloom in the past and with what exemplars? In the church, Roman, Anglican or nonconformist, exemplars the very Reverend John Conmey, S.J., the Reverend T. Salmon, D.D., Provost of Trinity College, Dr. Alexander J. Dowie. At the bar, English or Irish, exemplars Seymour Bush, K.C., Rufus Isaacs, K.C. On the stage, modern or Shakespearean exemplars, Charles Wyndham, high comedian, Osmond Turl, died 1901, exponent of Shakespeare. Did the host encourage his guest to chant in a modulated voice a strange legend on an allied theme? Reassuringly. Their place, where none could hear them talk, being secluded, reassured. The decocted beverages allowing for subsolid residual sediment of a mechanical mixture, water plus sugar plus cream plus cocoa having been consumed. Recite the first, major part, of this chanted legend. Little Harry Hughes and his schoolfellows all went out for to play ball, went out for to play ball. And the very first ball little Harry Hughes played, he drove it o'er the Jews' garden wall. He drove it o'er the Jews' garden wall. And the very second ball little Harry Hughes played, he broke the Jews' windows all. He broke the Jews' windows all. How did the son of Rudolph receive this first part? With unmixed feeling, smiling, a Jew, he heard with pleasure and saw the unbroken kitchen window. Recite the second part, minor, of the legend. Then out there came the Jew's daughter, and she all dressed in green. 
Come back, come back, you pretty little boy, and play your ball again, and play your ball again. I can't come back, and I won't come back, without my schoolfellows all, for if my master he did hear, he'd make it a sorry ball, he'd make it a sorry ball. She took him by the lily-white hand, and led him along the hall, until she led him to a room where none could hear him call, where none could hear him call. She took a penknife out of her pocket and cut off his little head, and now he'll play his ball no more, for he lies among the dead, for he lies among the dead. How did the father of Millicent receive this second part? With mixed feelings, unsmiling, he heard and saw with wonder a Jew's daughter all dressed in green. Condense Stephen's commentary. One of all, the least of all, is the victim predestined. Once by inadvertence, twice by design, he challenges his destiny. It comes when he is abandoned and challenges him reluctant and, as an apparition of hope and youth, holds him unresisting. It leads him to a strange habitation, to a secret infidel apartment, and there implacable immolates him, consenting. Why was the host, victim predestined, sad? He wished that a tale of a deed should be told, of a deed not by him should by him not be told. Why was the host reluctant, unresisting, still? In accordance with the law of the conservation of energy. Why was the host, secret infidel, silent? He weighed the possible evidences for and against ritual murder. The incitation of the hierarchy, the superstition of the populace, the propagation of rumour in continued fraction of veridicity, the envy of opulence, the influence of retaliation, the sporadic reappearance of atavistic delinquency, the mitigating circumstances of fanaticism, hypnotic suggestion and somnambulism. From which, if any of these mental or physical disorders, was he not totally immune? From hypnotic suggestion. Once, waking, he had not recognised his sleeping apartment. More than once, waking, he had been for an indefinite time incapable of moving or uttering sounds. From somnambulism, once sleeping, his body had risen, crouched and crawled in the direction of a heatless fire, and having attained its destination there, curled, unheated, in night attire, had lain sleeping. Had this latter or any cognate phenomenon declared itself in any member of his family? Twice, in Hollow Street and in Ontario Terrace. His daughter Millicent Millie, at the ages of six and eight years, had uttered in sleep an exclamation of terror and had replied to the interrogations of two figures in night attire with a vacant, mute expression. What other infantile memories had he of her? 15th June 1889, a querulous newborn female infant crying to cause and lessen congestion. A child renamed Padney Socks. She shook with shocks her money box. Counted his three free money penny buttons, one through three. A doll, a boy, a sailor she cast away. Blonde, born of two dark. She had blonde ancestry, remote. A violation. Herr Hauptmann, hey no, 
Austrian army. Proximate. A hallucination left in a Malvi British Navy. What endemic characteristics were present? Conversely, the nasal and frontal formation was derived in a direct line of lineage which, though interrupted, would continue at distant intervals to its most distant intervals. What memories had he of her adolescence? She relegated her hoop and skipping rope to a recess. On the Duke's lawn, entreated by an English visitor, she declined to permit him to make and take away her photographic image. Objection not stated. On the South Circular Road in the company of Elsa Potter, followed by an individual of sinister aspect, she went halfway down Stamer Street and turned abruptly back. Reason of change not stated. On the vigil of the 15th anniversary of her birth, she wrote a letter from Mullingar, County Westmeath, making a brief allusion to a local student, faculty and year not stated. Did that first division, portending a second division, afflict him? Less than he had imagined, more than he had hoped. What second departure was contemporaneously perceived by him similarly, if differently? A temporary departure of his cat. Why similarly? Why differently? Similarly, because actuated by a secret purpose, the quest of a new male, Mullingar student, or of a healing herb, Valerian. Differently because of different possible returns to the inhabitants or to the habitation. In other respects, were there differences similar? In passivity, in economy in the instinct of tradition, in unexpectedness. As? In as much as leaning she sustained her blonde hair for him to ribbon it for her. C.F. Neck-arching cat. Moreover, on the free surface of the lake in Stevens Green, amid inverted reflections of trees, her uncommented spit, describing concentric circles of waterings, indicated by the constancy of its permanence, the locus of a somnolent prostrate fish. C.F. Mouse-watching cat. Again, in order to remember the date, combatants, issue and consequence of a famous military engagement, she pulled a plait of her hair. C.F. Ear-washing cat. Furthermore, silly Millie, she dreamed of having had an unspoken, unremembered conversation with a horse whose name had been Joseph, to whom, which, she had offered a tumbler full of lemonade, which it, he, had appeared to have accepted. C.F. Hearth-dreaming cat. Hence, in passivity, in economy, in the instinct of tradition, in unexpectedness, their differences were similar. In what way had he utilised gifts, one, an owl, two, a clock, given as matrimonial auguries to interest and to instruct her? As object lessons to explain. One, the nature and habits of oviparous animals, the possibility of aerial flight, certain abnormalities of vision, the secular process of embalsamation. Two, the principle of the pendulum, exemplified in Bob, Wheelgear and Regulator, the translation in terms of human or social regulation of the various positions clockwise of movable indicators on an unmoving dial, the exactitude of the recurrence per hour of an instant in each hour when the longer and the shorter indicator were at the same angle of inclination, videlicet, five and five eleventh minutes past each hour per hour in arithmetical progression. In what manners did she reciprocate? She remembered. On the 27th anniversary of his birth, she presented to him a breakfast moustache cup of imitation Crown Derby porcelain ware. She provided, at quarter day or thereabouts, if or when purchases had been made by him, not for her, she showed herself attentive to his necessities, anticipating his desires. She 
admired, a natural phenomenon having been explained by him, not for her, she expressed the immediate desire to possess, without gradual acquisition, a fraction of his science, the moiety, the quarter, a thousandth part. What proposal did Bloom, diambulist, father of Millie, sonambulist, make to Stephen, noctambulist? To pass in repose the hours intervening between Thursday proper and Friday normal on an extemporised cubicle in the apartment immediately above the kitchen and immediately adjacent to the sleeping apartment of his host and hostess. What various advantages would or might have resulted from a prolongation of such extemporisation? For the guest, security of domicile and seclusion of study. For the host, rejuvenation of intelligence, vicarious satisfaction. For the hostess, disintegration of obsession, acquisition of correct Italian pronunciation. Why might these several provisional contingencies between a guest and a hostess not necessarily preclude or be precluded by a permanent eventuality of reconciliatory union between a schoolfellow and a Jew's daughter? Because the way to daughter led through mother, and the way to mother through daughter. To what inconsequent polysyllabic question of his host did the guest return a monosyllabic negative answer? If he had known the late Mrs. Emily Sinico, accidentally killed at Sydney Parade Railway Station, 14th October 1903. What inchoate corollary statement was consequently suppressed by the host? A statement explanatory of his absence on the occasion of the interment of Mrs. Mary Dedalus, born Goulding, 26th June 1903, Vigil of the anniversary of the decease of Rudolf Bloom, born Virag. Was the proposal of asylum accepted? Promptly, inexplicably, with amicability, gratefully it was declined. What exchange of money took place between host and guest? The former returned to the latter without interest a sum of money, one pound seven shillings, advanced by the latter to the former. What counter-proposals were alternately advanced, accepted, modified, declined, restated in other terms, re-accepted, ratified, reconfirmed? To inaugurate a pre-arranged course of Italian instruction, place the residence of the instructed. To inaugurate a course of vocal instruction, place the residence of the instructress. To inaugurate a series of static, semi-static and peripatetic intellectual dialogues, places the residence of both speakers, if both speakers were resident in the same place. The Ship Hotel and Tavern, 6 Lower Abbey Street, W&D Connery Proprietors. The National Library of Ireland, 10 Kildare Street. The National Maternity Hospital, 29, 30 and 31 Holler Street. A public garden, the vicinity of a place of worship. A conjunction of two or more public thoroughfares, the point of bisection of a right line drawn between their residences, if both speakers were resident in different places. What rendered problematic for Bloom the realisation of these mutually self-excluding propositions? The irreparability of the past. Once, at a performance of Albert Hengler's Circus in the Rotunda, Rutland Square, Dublin, an intuitive party-coloured clown in quest of paternity had penetrated from the ring to a place in the auditorium where Bloom, solitary, was seated, and had publicly declared to an exhilarated audience that he, Bloom, was his, the clown's papa. The imprevidability of the future. Once, in the summer of 1898, he, Bloom, had marked a florin, two shillings, with three notches on the milled edge, and tendered it in payment of an account due to and received by J&T Davy Family Grocers, 1 Charlemont Mall, Grand Canal, for circulation on the waters of civic finance, for possible circuitous or direct return. Was the clown Bloom's son? No. Had Bloom's coin returned? Never. 
Why would a recurrent frustration the more depress him? Because at the critical turning point of human existence, he desired to amend many social conditions, the product of inequality and avarice and international animosity. He believed then that human life was infinitely perfectible, eliminating these conditions. There remained the generic conditions imposed by natural, as distinct from human law, as integral parts of the human whole. The necessity of destruction to procure alimentary sustenance. The painful character of the ultimate functions of separate existence. The agonies of birth and death. The monotonous menstruation of simian and particularly human females, extending from the age of puberty to the menopause. Inevitable accidents at sea, in mines and factories, certain very painful maladies and their resultant surgical operations, innate lunacy and congenital criminality, decimating epidemics, catastrophic cataclysms which make terror the basis of human mentality, seismic upheavals, the epicentres of which are located in densely populated regions, the fact of vital growth through convulsions of metamorphosis from infancy through maturity to decay. Why did he desist from speculation? Because it was a task for a superior intelligence to substitute other, more acceptable phenomena in place of the less acceptable phenomena to be removed. Did Stephen participate in his dejection? He affirmed his significance as a conscious, rational animal proceeding syllogistically from the known to the unknown and a conscious, rational reagent between a micro and a macrocosm ineluctably constructed upon the incertitude of the void. Was this affirmation apprehended by Bloom? Not verbally, substantially. What comforted his misapprehension? That, as a competent, keyless citizen, he had proceeded energetically from the unknown to the known through the incertitude of the void. In what order of precedence, with what attendant ceremony, was the exodus from the house of bondage to the wilderness of inhabitation effected? Lighted candle in stick borne by Bloom... Diagonal hat on ash plant borne by Stephen. With what intonation, secreto, of what commemorative psalm? The 113th Modus Peregrinus in Exitu Israel de Egypto, Domus Jacob de Popolo Barbaro. What did each do at the door of egress? Bloom set the candlestick on the floor. Stephen put the hat on his head. For what creature was the door of egress a door of ingress? For a cat. What spectacle confronted them when they, first the host, then the guest, emerged silently, doubly dark, from obscurity by a passage from the rear of the house into the penumbra of the garden? The heaven tree of stars hung with humid night-blue fruit. With what meditations did Bloom accompany his demonstration to his companion of various constellations? Meditations of evolution increasingly vaster of the moon, invisible in incipient lunation, approaching perigee, of the infinite, latiginous, scintillating, uncondensed Milky Way, discernible by daylight by an observer, placed at the lower end of a cylindrical vertical shaft, 5,000 feet deep, sunk from the surface towards the centre of the Earth, of Sirius, Alpha in Canis Major, ten light years, 57 million million miles distant, and in volume 900 times the dimension of our planet, of Arcturus, of the precession of equinoxes, of Orion with belt and sextuple, Sun, Theta and Nebula, in which one hundred of our solar systems could be contained, of moribund and of nascent new stars, such as Nova in 1901, 
of our system plunging towards the constellation of Hercules, of the parallax or parallactic drift of so-called fixed stars, in reality ever moving from immeasurably remote aeons to infinitely remote futures, in comparison with which the years three score and ten of allotted human life formed a parenthesis of infinitesimal brevity. Were their obverse meditations of involution increasingly less vast? Of the aeons of geological periods recorded in the stratifications of the Earth, of the myriad minute entomological organic existences concealed in cavities of the Earth, beneath removable stones, in hives and mounds, of microbes, germs, bacteria, bacilli, spermatosa, of the incalculable trillions of billions of millions of imperceptible molecules contained by cohesion of molecular affinity in a single pinhead, of the universe of human serum, constellated with red and white bodies, themselves universes of void space, constellated with other bodies, each in continuity, its universe of divisible component bodies, of which each was again divisible in divisions of redivisible component bodies, dividends and divisors, ever diminishing without actual division, till, if the progress were carried far enough, naught nowhere was never reached. Why did he not elaborate these calculations to a more precise result? Because some years previously, in 1886, when occupied with the problem of the quadrature of the circle, he had learned of the existence of a number computed to a relative degree of accuracy to be of such magnitude and of so many places, e.g. the ninth power of the ninth power of nine, that, the result having been obtained, 33 closely printed volumes of 1,000 pages each of innumerable choirs and reams of India paper would have to be requisitioned in order to contain the complete tale of its printed integers of units, tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions, the nucleus of the nebula of every digit of every series containing succinctly the potentiality of being raised to the utmost kinetic elaboration of any power of any of its powers. Did he find the problem of the inhabitability of the planets and their satellites by a race given in species and of the possible social and moral redemption of said race by a redeemer easier of solution? Of a different order of difficulty... Conscious that the human organism, normally capable of sustaining an atmospheric pressure of 19 tonnes, when elevated to a considerable altitude in the terrestrial atmosphere, suffered with arithmetical progression of intensity, according as the line of demarcation between troposphere and stratosphere was approximated, from nasal haemorrhage, impeded respiration and vertigo. When proposing this problem for solution, he had conjectured, as a working hypothesis, which could not be proved impossible, that a more adaptable and differently anatomically constructed race of beings might subsist otherwise under Martian, Mercurial, Veneral, Jovian, Saturnian, Neptunian or Uranian sufficient and equivalent conditions. Though an apogean humanity of beings created in varying forms with finite differences resulting similar to the whole and to one another would probably there as here remain inalterably and inalienably attached to vanities, to vanities of vanities and all that is vanity. And the problem of possible redemption? The minor was proved by the major. Which various features of the constellations were in turn considered? The various colours significant of various degrees of vitality. White, yellow, crimson, vermilion, cinnabar. Their degrees of brilliancy, their magnitudes revealed up to and including the seventh. Their positions, the Wagoner Star, Walsingham Way, the Chariot of David the annular cinctures of Saturn, the condensation of spiral nebulae into suns, 
the interdependent gyrations of double suns, the independent synchronous discoveries of Galileo, Simon Marius, Piazzi, Leveria, Herschel, Gall, the systematizations attempted by Bode and Kepler of cubes of distances and squares of times of revolution, the almost infinite compressibility of hirsute comets and their vast elliptical egressive and re-entrant orbits from perihelion to aphelion, the sidereal origin of meteoric stones, the Libyan floods on Mars about the period of the birth of the younger astroscopist, the annual recurrence of meteoric showers about the period of the Feast of S. Lawrence, Martyr, 10 August, the monthly recurrence known as the new moon with the old moon in her arms, the positive influence of celestial on human bodies, the appearance of a star first magnitude of exceeding brilliancy dominating by night and day a new luminous sun generated by the collision and amalgamation in incandescence of two non-luminous ex-suns, about the period of the birth of William Shakespeare over Delta in the recumbent, never-setting constellation of Cassiopeia, and of a star, second magnitude, of similar origin but lesser brilliancy, which had appeared in and disappeared from the constellation of the Corona Septentrionalis about the period of the birth of Leopold Bloom, and of other stars of presumably similar origin which had effectively or presumably appeared in and disappeared from the constellation of Andromeda about the period of the birth of Stephen Dedalus, and in and from the constellation of Auriga some years after the birth and death of Rudolf Bloom, Jr., and in and from other constellations some years before or after the birth or death of other persons. The attendant phenomena of eclipses, solar and lunar, from immersion to immersion, abatement of wind, transit of shadow, taciturnity of winged creatures, emergence of nocturnal or crepuscular animals, persistence of infernal light, obscurity of terrestrial waters, pallor of human beings. His, Bloom's, logical conclusion, having weighed the matter and allowing for possible error? That it was not a heaven tree, not a heaven grot, not a heaven beast, not a heaven man. That it was a utopia, there being no known method from the known to the unknown. An infinity, renderable equally finite by the suppositious probable apposition of one or more bodies equally of the same and of different magnitudes a mobility of illusory forms immobilized in space, remobilized in air, a past which possibly had ceased to exist as a present before its future spectators had entered actual present existence. Was he more convinced of the aesthetic value of the spectacle? Indubitably in consequence of the reiterated examples of poets in the delirium of the frenzy of attachment or in the abasement of rejection invoking ardent sympathetic constellations or the frigidity of the satellite of their planet. Did he then accept as an article of belief the theory of astrological influences upon sublunary disasters? It seemed to him as possible of proof as of confutation, and the nomenclature employed in its selenographical charts, as attributable to verifiable intuition, as to fallacious analogy. The lake of dreams, the sea of rains, the gulf of dews, the ocean of fecundity. What special affinities appeared to him to exist between the moon and woman? Her antiquity in preceding and surviving successive Tellurian generations, her nocturnal predominance, her satellitic dependence, her luminary reflection, her constancy under all her phases, rising and setting by her appointed times, waxing and waning, the forced invariability of her aspect, her indeterminate response to inaffirmative interrogation, her potency over effluent and refluent waters, 
her power to enamour, to mortify, to invest with beauty, to render insane, to incite to and aid delinquency, the tranquil inscrutability of her visage, the terribility of her isolated, dominant, implacable, resplendent propinquity, her omens of tempest and of calm, the stimulation of her light, her motion and her presence, the admonition of her craters, her arid seas, her silence, her splendour when visible, her attraction when invisible. What visible luminous sign attracted Bloom's who attracted Stephen's gaze? In the second story rear of his Bloom's house, the light of a paraffin oil lamp with oblique shade projected on a screen of roller blinds supplied by Frank O'Hara, window blind, curtain pole and revolving shutter manufacturer, 16 Anger Street. How did he elucidate the mystery of an invisible person, his wife, Marion, Molly Bloom, denoted by a visible splendid sign, a lamp? With indirect and direct verbal allusions or affirmations, with subdued affection and admiration, with description, with impediment... With suggestion. Both, then, were silent? Silent, each contemplating the other in both mirrors of the reciprocal flesh of their his-not-his fellow faces. Were they indefinitely inactive? At Stephen's suggestion, at Bloom's instigation, both, first Stephen, then Bloom, in penumbra, urinated. Their sides contiguous, their organs of micturition reciprocally rendered invisible by manual circumposition, their gazes, first Bloom's, then Stephen's, elevated to the projected luminous and semi-luminous shadow. Similarly? The trajectories of their first sequent, then simultaneous urinations were dissimilar. Bloom's longer, less irruent, in the incomplete form of the bifurcated penultimate alphabetical letter, who, in his ultimate year at high school, 1880, had been capable of attaining the point of greatest altitude against the whole concurrent strength of the institution, 210 scholars. Stevens, higher, more sibilant, who, in the ultimate hours of the previous day, had augmented by diuretic consumption an insistent vesicle pressure. What different problems presented themselves to each concerning the invisible, audible, collateral organ of the other? To Bloom, the problems of irritability, tumescence, rigidity, reactivity, dimension, sanatoriness, pelocity. To Stephen, the problem of the sacerdotal integrity of Jesus circumcised, 1st January, holiday of obligation to hear Mass and abstain from unnecessary servile work, and the problem as to whether the divine prepuce, the carnal bridal ring of the Holy Roman Catholic Apostolic Church, conserved in Calcutta, were deserving of simple hyperjuly or of the fourth degree of latria according to the abscission of such divine excrescences as hair and toenails. What celestial sign was by both simultaneously observed? A star precipitated with great apparent velocity across the firmament from Vega in the Lyre above the zenith beyond the star group of the Tress of Berenice towards the zodiacal sign of Leo. How did the centripetal remainder afford egress to the centrifugal departer? By inserting the barrel of a narrugenated male key in the hole of an unstable female lock, obtaining a purchase on the bow of the key and turning its wards from right to left, withdrawing a bolt from its staple, pulling inward spasmodically an obsolescent unhinged door and revealing an aperture for free egress and free ingress. How did they take leave one of the other in separation? Standing perpendicular at the same door and on different sides of its base, the lines of their valedictory arms meeting at any point and forming any angle less than the sum of two right angles. What sound accompany the union of their tangent, the disunion of their respectively centrifugal and centripetal hands? 
The sound of the peal of the hour of the night by the chime of the bells in the church of St. George. What echoes of that sound were by both and each heard? By Stephen? Liliata rutilantium, turmar circum det, jubilantium te virginum, chorus excipiat. By Bloom? Hey-ho, 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 hey-ho. Where were the several members of the company, which, with Bloom that day, at the bidding of that peal, had travelled from Sandy Mount in the south to Glasnevin in the north? Martin Cunningham in bed, Jack Power in bed, Simon Dedalus in bed, Tom Kernan in bed, Ned Lambert in bed, Joe Hines in bed, John Henry Menton in bed, Bernard Corrigan in bed, Patsy Dignam in bed, Paddy Dignam in the grave. Alone? What did Bloom hear? The double reverberation of retreating feet on the heaven-born earth, the double vibration of a Jew's harp in the resonant lane. Alone, what did Bloom feel? The cold of interstellar space, thousands of degrees below freezing point or the absolute zero of Fahrenheit, centigrade or Reimer, the incipient intimations of proximate dawn. Of what did bell chime and hand touch and footstep and lone chill remind him? Of companions now in various manners in different places defunct. Percy Apjohn, killed in action, Modder River. Philip Gilligan, Phytisis, Jervis Street Hospital. Matthew F. Kane, accidental drowning, Dublin Bay. Philip Moisel, Paimia, Hatesbury Street. Michael Hart, Phytisis, Mater Misericordiae Hospital. Patrick Dignam, apoplexy, Sandymount. What prospect of what phenomena inclined him to remain? The disparition of three final stars, the diffusion of daybreak, the apparition of a new solar disk. Had he ever been a spectator of those phenomena? Once, in 1887, after a protracted performance of charades in the house of Luke Doyle, Kimmage, he had awaited with patience the apparition of the diurnal phenomenon, seated on a wall, his gaze turned in the direction of Mizrach, the east. He remembered the initial paraphenomena? More active air a matutinal distant cock, ecclesiastical clocks at various points, avine music, the isolated tread of an early wayfarer, the visible diffusion of the light of an invisible luminous body, the first golden limb of the resurgent sun perceptible low on the horizon. Did he remain? With deep inspiration he returned, retraversing the garden, re-entering the passage, re-closing the door. With brief suspiration, he reassumed the candle, reascended the stairs, reapproached the door of the front room, hall floor, and re-entered. What suddenly arrested his ingress? The right temporal lobe of the hollow sphere of his cranium came into contact with a solid timber angle, where, an infinitesimal but sensible fraction of a second later, a painful sensation was located, in consequence of the antecedent sensations transmitted and registered. Describe the alterations affected in the disposition of the articles of furniture. A sofa, upholstered in prune plush, had been translocated from opposite the door to the ingle side near the compactly furled Union Jack, an alteration which he had frequently intended to execute. The blue and white checker inlaid majolica top table had been placed opposite the door in the place vacated by the prune plush sofa. The walnut sideboard, a projecting angle of which had momentarily arrested his ingress, had been moved from its position beside the door to a more advantageous but more perilous position in front of the door. 
two chairs had been moved from right and left of the Ingleside to the position originally occupied by the blue and white checker inlaid majolica top table. Describe them. One, a squat, stuffed, easy chair with stout arms extended and back slanted to the rear, which, repelled in recoil, had then upturned an irregular fringe of a rectangular rug and now displayed on its amply upholstered seat a centralised diffusing and diminishing discoloration. The other, a slender, splay-foot chair of glossy cane curves placed directly opposite the former, its frame from top to seat and from seat to base being varnished dark brown, its seat being a bright circle of white plaited rush. What significance is attached to these two chairs? Significances of similitude, of posture, of symbolism, of circumstantial evidence, of testimonial supermanence. What occupied the position originally occupied by the sideboard? A vertical piano, Cadby, with exposed keyboard, its closed coffin supporting a pair of long yellow ladies' gloves and an emerald ashtray containing four consumed matches, a partly consumed cigarette and two discoloured ends of cigarettes, its music rest supporting the music in the key of G natural for voice and piano of Love's Old Sweet Song, words by G. Clifton Bingham, composed by J. L. Malloy, sung by Madame Antoinette Sterling. Open at the last page with the final indications ad libitum, forte, pedal, animato, sustained, pedal, ritirando, close. With what sensations did Bloom contemplate in rotation these objects? With strain, elevating a candlestick. With pain, feeling on his right temple a contused tumescence. With attention, focusing his gaze on a large, dull, passive and slender, bright active. With solicitation, bending and downturning the upturned rug fringe, with amusement, remembering Dr. Malachy Mulligan's scheme of colour containing the gradation of green, with pleasure, repeating the words and antecedent act, and perceiving through various channels of internal sensibility the consequent and concomitant tepid, pleasant diffusion of gradual discoloration. His next proceeding... From an open box on the majolica top table he extracted a black, diminutive cone, one inch in height, placed it on its circular base on a small tin plate, placed his candlestick on the right corner of the mantelpiece, produced from his waistcoat a folded page of prospectus illustrated entitled Agendeth Netem, unfolded the same, examined it superficially, rolled it into a thin cylinder, ignited it in the candle flame, applied it when ignited to the apex of the cone till the latter reached the stage of rutilance, placed the cylinder in the basin of the candlestick, disposing its unconsumed part in such a manner as to facilitate total combustion. What followed this operation? That truncated conical crater, summit of the diminutive volcano, emitted a vertical and serpentine fume redolent of aromatic oriental incense. What homothetic objects other than the candlestick stood on the mantelpiece? A timepiece of striated Connemara marble stopped at the hour of 4.46am on the 21st March 1896, matrimonial gift of Matthew Dillon. A dwarf tree of glacial arborescence under a transparent bellshade, matrimonial gift of Luke and Carolyn Doyle. An embalmed owl, matrimonial gift of Alderman John Hooper. What interchanges of looks took place between these three objects and Bloom? In the mirror of the gilt-bordered pier-glass, the undecorated back of the dwarf tree regarded the upright back of the embalmed owl. 
Before the mirror, the matrimonial gift of Alderman John Hooper, with a clear, melancholy, wise, bright, motionless, compassionate gaze, regarded Bloom, while Bloom, with obscure, tranquil, profound, motionless, compassionate gaze, regarded the matrimonial gift of Luke and Carolyn Doyle. What composite, asymmetrical image in the mirror then attracted his attention? The image of a solitary, ipsorelative, mutable, aliorelative man. Why solitary, ipso-relative? Brothers and sisters had he none, yet this man's father was his grandfather's son. Why mutable, alia-relative? From infancy to maturity he had resembled his maternal procreatrix. From maturity to senility he would increasingly resemble his paternal creator. What final visual impression was communicated to him by the mirror? The optical reflection of several inverted volumes improperly arranged and not in the order of their common letters with scintillating titles on the two bookshelves opposite. Catalogue these books. Tom's Dublin Post Office Directory, 1886. Dennis Florence McCarthy's Poetical Works, Copper Beechleaf, Bookmark at P5. Shakespeare's Works, Dark Crimson, Morocco, Gold Tooled. The Useful Ready Reckoner, Brown Cloth. The Secret History of the Court of Charles II, Red Cloth, Tooled Binding. The Child's Guide, Blue Cloth. When We Were Boys, by William O'Brien, MP. Green Cloth, Slightly Faded, Envelope Bookmark at P217. Thoughts from Spinoza, Maroon Leather. The Story of the Heavens, by Sir Robert Ball, Blue Cloth. Ellis's Three Trips to Madagascar, Brown Cloth, Title Obliterated. The Stark Munro Letters, by A. Conan Doyle, property of the City of Dublin Public Library, 106 Cable Street, Lent, 21st May, Whitson Eve, 1904, Jew, 4th June, 1904, 13 days overdue, black cloth binding, bearing white, letter number ticket. Voyages in China, by Vietor, recovered with brown paper, reading title. Philosophy of the Talmud, sewn pamphlet. Lockhart's Life of Napoleon, cover wanting, marginal annotations, minimising victories, aggrandising defeats of the protagonist. Sol und Haben by Gustav Freytag, blackboards, gothic characters, cigarette coupon bookmark at P24. Hosier's History of the Russo-Turkish War, brown cloth, two volumes with gummed label, Garrison Library, Governor's Parade Gibraltar on verso of the cover. Lawrence Bloomfield in Ireland by William Allingham, second edition, green cloth, gilt trefoil design, previous owner's name on recto of flyleaf erased. A handbook of astronomy, cover brown leather detached, five plates, antique letterpress, long primer, author's footnotes, nonpareil, marginal clues brevier, captions, small pica. The Hidden Life of Christ, black boards. In the track of the sun, yellow cloth, title page missing, recurrent title intestation. Physical strength and how to obtain it by Eugene Sandow, red cloth. Short but yet plain elements of geometry, written in French by F. Ignat, Pardis and rendered into English by John Harris, D.D., London, printed for R. Naplock at the Bishop's Head, M.D.C.C.X.I., with dedicatory epistle to his worthy friend, Charles Cox, Esquire, Member of Parliament for the Burg of Southwark, and having ink-calligraphed statement on the flyleaf, certifying that the book was the property of Michael Gallagher, dated this 10th day of May, 1822, and requesting the person who should find it, if the book should be lost or go astray, to restore it to Michael Gallagher, Carpenter, Duffery Gate, Enniscorthy, County Wicklow, the finest place in the world.
What reflections occupied his mind during the process of reversion of the inverted volumes? The necessity of order, a place for everything and everything in its place, the deficient appreciation of literature possessed by females, the incongruity of an apple incuniated in a tumbler and of an umbrella inclined in a clothes stool, the insecurity of hiding any secret document behind, beneath or between the pages of a book. Which volume was the largest in bulk? Hosier's History of the Russo-Turkish War. What, among other data, did the second volume of the work in question contain? The name of a decisive battle, forgotten, frequently remembered by a decisive officer, Major Brian Cooper Tweedy, remembered. Why, firstly and secondly, did he not consult the work in question? Firstly, in order to exercise mnemotechnic. Secondly, because after an interval of amnesia, when seated at the central table, about to consult the work in question, he remembered by mnemotechnic the name of the military engagement, Plevna. What caused him consolation in his sitting posture? The candour, nudity, pose, tranquillity, youth, grace, sex, counsel of a statue erect in the centre of the table, an image of Narcissus, purchased by auction from P.A. Wren, Nine Bachelors Walk. What caused him irritation in his sitting posture? Inhibitory pressure of collar size 17 and waistcoat five buttons, two articles of clothing superfluous in the costume of mature males and inelastic to alterations of mass by expansion. How was the irritation allayed? He removed his collar with contained black necktie and collapsible stud from his neck to a position on the left of the table. He unbuttoned successively in reversed direction waistcoat, trousers, shirt and vest along the medial line of irregular, increspated black hair extending in triangular convergence from the pelvic basin over the circumference of the abdomen and the umbilicular fossicle along the medial line of nodes to the intersection of the sixth pectoral vertebrae, thence produced both ways at right angles and terminating in circles described about two equidistant points, right and left, on the summits of the mammary prominences. He unbraced successively each of six minus one braced trouser buttons arranged in pairs of which one incomplete. What involuntary actions followed? He compressed between two fingers the flesh circumjacent to a cicatrice in the left infracostal region below the diaphragm, resulting from a sting inflicted two weeks and three days previously, 23 May 1904, by a bee. He scratched imprecisely with his right hand, though insensible of prurition, various points and surfaces of his partly exposed, wholly abluted skin. He inserted his left hand into the left lower pocket of his waistcoat and extracted and replaced a silver coin, one shilling, placed there, presumably, on the occasion, 17th October 1903, of the interment of Mrs. Emily Sinico, Sydney Parade. Compile the budget for 16th June 1904. Debit. One poor kidney, three pence. One copy Freeman's Journal, one penny. One bath and gratification, one shilling and sixpence. Tram fare, one penny. In memoriam, Patrick Dignam, five shillings. Two Banbury cakes, one penny. One lunch, sevenpence. One renewal fee for book, one shilling. One packet notepaper and envelopes, two pence. One dinner and gratification, two shillings. One postal order and stamp, two shillings and eightpence. Tram fare a penny. One pig's foot, fourpence. One sheep's trotter, threepence. One cake fries plain chocolate, one penny. One square soda bread, fourpence. One coffee and bun, fourpence. Loan, Stephen Dedalus, refunded, one pound seven shillings. Balance, seventeen shillings and fivepence. Total, two pounds nineteen and three. Credit, cash in hand, four shillings and ninepence. 
commission received Freeman's journal £1.7 and sixpence. Loan, Stephen Dedalus, £1.7. Total, £2.19 and three. Did the process of divestiture continue? Sensible of a benignant, persistent ache in his foot soles, he extended his foot to one side and observed the creases, protuberances and salient points caused by foot pressure in the course of walking repeatedly in several different directions. Then, inclined, he disnoded the lace knots, unhooked and loosened the laces, took off each of his two boots for the second time, detached the partially moistened right sock through the forepart of which the nail of his great toe had again effected, raised his right foot, and having unhooked a purple elastic sock suspender, took off his right sock, placed his unclothed right foot on the margin of the seat of his chair, picked at and gently lacerated the protruding part of the great toenail, raised the part lacerated to his nostrils, and inhaled the odour of the quick, then, with satisfaction, threw away the lacerated, unguical fragment. Why with satisfaction? Because the odour inhaled corresponded to other odours inhaled of other unguical fragments, picked and lacerated by Master Bloom, pupil of Mrs. Ellis's juvenile school, patiently each night in the act of brief genuflection and nocturnal prayer and ambitious meditation. In what ultimate ambition had all concurrent and consecutive ambitions now coalesced? Not to inherit by right of primogeniture, gavelkind, or borough English, or possess in perpetuity an extensive domain of a sufficient number of acres, roods, and perches, statute land measure, valuation £42, of grazing turbury surrounding a baronial hall with gate lodge and carriage drive, nor, on the other hand, a terrace house or semi-detached villa described as Rus in Urbe or Kisi Sana but to purchase by private treaty in fee simple attached bungalow-shaped two-storey dwelling house of southerly aspect surmounted by vane and lightning conductor connected with the earth with porch covered by parasitic plants ivy or virginia creeper hall door olive green with smart carriage finish and neat door brasses stucco front with gilt tracery at eaves and gable rising if possible upon a gentle eminence with agreeable prospect from balcony with stone pillar parapet over unoccupied and unoccupiable interjacent pastures and standing in five or six acres of its own ground at such a distance from the nearest public thoroughfare as to render its house lights visible at night above and through a quick-set hornbeam hedge of topiary cutting situate at a given point not less than one statute mile from the periphery of the metropolis within a time limit of not more than five minutes from tram or train line e g dundrum south or Sutton North, both localities equally reported by trial to resemble the terrestrial poles in being favourable climates for physical subjects. The premises to be held under fee-farm rent, lease 999 years, the messuage to consist of one drawing-room with bay window, two lancets, thermometer affixed, one sitting-room, four bedrooms, two servants' rooms, tiled kitchen with close range and scullery, Lounge hall fitted with linen wall presses, fumed oak sectional bookcase containing the Encyclopaedia Britannica and New Century Dictionary, transverse obsolete medieval and oriental weapons, dinner gong, alabaster lamp, bowl pendant, vulcanite automatic telephone receiver with adjacent directory, hand-tufted Axminster carpet with cream ground and trellis border, loo table with pillar and claw legs, Hearth with massive fire brasses and ormolu mantel chronometer clock, guaranteed timekeeper with cathedral chime, barometer with hygrographic chart, 
comfortable lounge settees and corner fitments, upholstered in ruby plush with good springing and sunk centre. Three-banner Japanese screen and cuspidors, club-style, rich wine-coloured leather, gloss renewable with a minimum of labour by use of linseed oil and vinegar, and pyramidically prismatic central chandelier luster, bentwood perch with a finger-tame parrot, expurgated language, embossed mural paper at ten shillings per dozen with transverse swags of carmen floral design and top-crown frieze. Staircase, three continuous flights at successive right angles, of varnished, clear-grained oak, treads and risers, newel, balusters and handrail, with stepped-up panel dado, dressed with camphorated wax. Bathroom, hot and cold supply, reclining and shower. Water closet on mezzanine, provided with opaque, single-pane oblong window. Tip-up seat, bracket lamp, brass tie-rod brace, armrests, footstool, and artistic oleograph on inner face of door. Ditto, plain. Servants' apartments with separate sanitary and hygienic necessaries for cook, general and between-maid, salary rising by biennial unearned increments of £2, with comprehensive fidelity insurance annual bonus £1, and retiring allowance based on the 65 system after 30 years' service. Pantry, buttery, larder, refrigerator, out-offices, coal and wood cellarage with wine bin, still and sparkling vintages for distinguished guests if entertained to dinner, evening dress, carbon monoxide gas supply throughout. What additional attractions might the grounds contain? As addenda, a tennis and fives court, a shrubbery, a glass summer house with tropical palms, equipped in the best botanical manner, a rockery with water spray, a beehive arranged on humane principles, Oval flower beds in rectangular grass plots set with eccentric ellipses of scarlet and chrome tulips, blue scillas, crocuses, polyanthus, sweet william, sweet pea, lily of the valley. Bulbs obtainable from Sir James W. Mackey Limited, wholesale and retail, seed and bulb merchant and nurseryman, agent for chemical manures, 23 Sackville Street Upper. An orchard, kitchen garden and vinery, protected against illegal trespassers by glass-topped mural enclosures, a lumber shed with padlock for various inventoried implements. As? Eel traps, lobster pots, fishing rods, hatchet, steel yard, grindstone, clod crusher, swathe turner, carriage sack, telescope ladder, ten tooth rake, washing clogs, hay tether, tumbling rake, bill hook, paint pot, brush, hoe and so on. What improvements might be subsequently introduced? A rabbitry and fowl run, a dovecote, a botanical conservatory, two hammocks, ladies and gentlemen, a sundial shaded and sheltered by laburnum or lilac trees, an exotically harmonically accorded Japanese tinkle gate bell affixed to left lateral gatepost, a capacious water butt, a lawnmower with side delivery and grass box, a lawn sprinkler with hydraulic hose. What facilities of transit were desirable? When city-bound, frequent connection by train or tram from their respective intermediate station or terminal. When country-bound, velocipedes, a chainless freewheel roadster cycle with side basket car attached, or draft conveyance, a donkey with wicker trap, or smart phaeton with good working solidungular cob, Rowan Gelding, 14H. What might be the name of this erigible or erected residence? Bloom Cottage, St. Leopold's, Flowerville. Could Bloom of 7 Eccles Street foresee Bloom of Flowerville? 
In loose, all-wool garments with Harris tweed cap, price eight and six, and useful garden boots with elastic gussets and watering can, planting aligned young fir trees, syringing, pruning, staking, sowing hayseed, trundling a weed-laden wheelbarrow without excessive fatigue at sunset, amid the scent of new-mown hay, ameliorating the soil, multiplying wisdom, achieving longevity. What syllabus of intellectual pursuits was simultaneously possible? Snapshot photography, comparative study of religions, folklore relative to various amatory and superstitious practices, contemplation of the celestial constellations. What lighter recreations? Outdoor, garden and fieldwork, cycling on level macadamised causeways, ascents of moderately high hills, natation in secluded fresh water and unmolested river boating in secure wherry or light curricle with kedge anchor on reaches free from weirs and rapids period of estivation vespertinal perambulation or equestrian circumprocession with inspection of sterile landscape and contrastingly agreeable cottagers fires of smoking peat turves period of hibernation indoor Discussion in tepid security of unsolved historical and criminal problems. Lecture of unexpurgated exotic erotic masterpieces. House carpentry with toolbox containing hammer, awl, nail, screws, tin tacks, gimlet, tweezers, bullnose plane and turnscrew. Might he become a gentleman farmer of field produce and livestock? Not impossibly, with one or two stripper cows, one pike of upland hay and requisite farming implements, e.g. an end-to-end churn, a turnip pulper, etc. What would be his civic functions and social status among the county families and landed gentry? Arranged successively in ascending powers of hierarchical order, that of gardener, groundsman, cultivator, breeder, and at the zenith of his career, resident magistrate or justice of the peace with a family crest and coat of arms and appropriate classical motto, Semper Paratus, duly recorded in the court directory, Bloom, Leopold P., MP, PC, KP, LLD, Honoris Causa, Bloomville, Dundrum and mentioned in court and fashionable intelligence, Mr. and Mrs. Leopold Bloom have left Kingstown for England. What course of action did he outline for himself in such capacity? A course that lay between undue clemency and excessive rigour. The dispensation in a heterogeneous society of arbitrary classes, incessantly rearranged in terms of greater and lesser social inequality, of unbiased, homogeneous, indisputable justice tempered with mitigants of the widest possible latitude, but exactable to the uttermost farthing with confiscation of estate, real and personal, to the crown. Loyal to the highest constituted power in the land, actuated by an innate love of rectitude, his aims would be the strict maintenance of public order, the repression of many abuses, though not of all simultaneously, every measure of reform or retrenchment being a preliminary solution to be contained by fluxion in the final solution the upholding of the letter of the law common statute and law merchant against all traversers in common and trespassers acting in contravention of bylaws and regulations all resuscitators by trespass and petty larceny of kindlings of venville rights obsolete by desuetude all orotund instigators of international persecution all perpetrators of international animosities, all menial molesters of domestic conviviality, all recalcitrant violators of domestic connubiality. Prove that he had loved rectitude from his earliest youth. 
To Master Percy Apjohn at high school in 1880, he had divulged his disbelief in the tenets of the Irish Protestant Church, to which his father Rudolf Virag, later Rudolf Bloom, had been converted from the Israelitic faith and communion in 1865 by the Society for Promoting Christianity Among the Jews. Subsequently abjured by him in favour of Roman Catholicism at the epoch of and with a view to his matrimony in 1888. To Daniel McGrain and Francis Wade in 1882, during a juvenile friendship terminated by the premature emigration of the former, he had advocated during nocturnal perambulations the political theory of colonial, e.g. Canadian, expansion and the evolutionary theories of Charles Darwin expounded in The Descent of Man and The Origin of Species. In 1885, he had publicly expressed his adherence to the collective and national economic program advocated by James Finton Lawler, John Fisher Murray, John Mitchell, J.F.X. O'Brien and others, the agrarian policy of Michael Dabbitt, the constitutional agitation of Charles George Parnell, MP for Cork City, the program of peace, retrenchment and reform of William Yord Gladstone, MP for Midlothian, N.B., and, in support of his political convictions, had climbed up into the secure position amid the ramifications of a tree on Northumberland Road to see the entrance, 2nd February 1888, into the capital of a demonstrative torchlight procession of 20,000 divided into 120 trade corporations bearing 2,000 torches in escort of the Marcus of Ripon and John Morley. How much and how did he propose to pay for this country residence? As per prospectus of the industrious, foreign, acclimatised, nationalised, friendly, state-aided building society, incorporated 1874, a maximum of £60 per annum, being one-sixth of an assured income derived from gilt-edge securities representing at 5% simple interest on capital of £1,200, Estimate of price at 20 years purchase, of which one-third to be paid on acquisition and the balance in the form of annual rent, viz. £800 plus 2.5% interest on the same, repayable quarterly in equal annual instalments until extinction by amortisation of loan advanced for purchase within a period of 20 years, amounting to an annual rental of £64, head rent included, the title deeds to remain in possession of the lender or lenders with a saving clause envisaging forced sale, foreclosure and mutual compensation in the event of protracted failure to pay the terms assigned. Otherwise, the message to become the absolute property of the tenant-occupier upon expiry of the period of years stipulated. What rapid but insecure means to opulence might facilitate immediate purchase? A private wireless telegraph which would transmit by dot and dash system the result of a national equine handicap, flat or steeplechase, of one or more miles and furlongs, won by an outsider at odds of 50 to 1 at 3 hours 8 minutes p.m. at Ascot, Greenwich time, the message being received and available for betting purposes in Dublin at 2.59 p.m. Dunsink time. The unexpected discovery of an object of great monetary value, precious stone, valuable adhesive or impressed postage stamps, Seven shilling mauve imperforate Hamburg, eighteen sixty six, four pence rose blue paper perforate Great Britain, eighteen fifty five, one franc stone official rouletted diagonal surcharge Luxembourg, eighteen seventy eight, antique dynastical ring, unique relic in unusual repositories or by unusual means, from the air dropped by an eagle in flight, by fire amid the carbonized remains of an incendiated edifice in the sea, amid flotsam, jetsam, lagon, and derelict, on earth, in the gizzard of a comestible fowl, 
a Spanish prisoner's donation of a distant treasure of valuables or specie or bullion lodged with a solvent banking corporation 100 years previously at 5% compound interest of the collective worth of £5 million STG, £5 million sterling. A contract with an inconsiderate contractee for the delivery of 32 consignments of some given commodity in consideration of cash payment on delivery at the initial rate of one farthing to be increased constantly in the geometrical progression of two. A farthing, a halfpenny, a penny, twopence, fourpence, eightpence, one and fourpence, two and eightpence to 32 terms. A prepared scheme based on a study of the laws of probability to break the bank at Monte Carlo. A solution of the secular problem of the quadrature of the circle, government premium, one million pounds sterling. Was vast wealth acquirable through industrial channels? The reclamation of dunhams of waste aranary soil, proposed in the prospectus of Agendath Netem, Bleibtraustrasse Berlin, W15, by the cultivation of orange plantations and melon fields and reforestation. The utilisation of waste paper, fells of sewer rodents, human excrement possessing chemical properties, in view of the vast production of the first, vast number of the second, and immense quantity of the third, every normal human being of average vitality and appetite producing annually, cancelling by-products of water, a sum total of 80 pounds, mixed animal and vegetable diet, to be multiplied by 4,386,035, the total population of Ireland according to the census returns of 1901. Were there schemes of wider scope? A scheme to be formulated and submitted for approval to the Harbour Commissioners for the exploitation of white coal, hydraulic power, obtained by hydroelectric plant at peak of tide at Dublin Bar, or at head of water at Pulafuca or Powers Court, or catchment basins of main streams for the economic production of 500,000 WHP of electricity. A scheme to enclose the peninsular delta of the North Bull at Dollymount and erect on the space of the foreland, used for golf links and rifle ranges, an asphalted esplanade with casinos, booths, shooting galleries, hotels, boarding houses, reading rooms, establishments for mixed bathing. A scheme for the use of dog vans and goat vans for the delivery of early morning milk. A scheme for the development of Irish tourist traffic in and around Dublin by means of petrol-propelled river boats plying in the fluvial fairway between Island Bridge and Rings End, sharabangs, narrow-gauge local railways and pleasure steamers for coastwise navigation, ten shillings per person per day, guide trilingual included. A scheme for the repristination of passenger and goods traffics over Irish waterways when freed from weed beds. A scheme to connect by tramline the cattle market, North Circular Road and Prussia Street, with the Quays, Sheriff Street, Lower and East Wall, parallel with the Link Line Railway, laid in conjunction with the Great Southern and Western Railway Line, between the Cattle Park, Liffey Junction, and terminus of Midland Great Western Railway, 43 to 45 North Wall, in proximity to the terminal stations or Dublin branches of Great Central Railway, Midland Railway of England, City of Dublin Steam Packet Company, Lancaster. Yorkshire Railway Company, Dublin and Glasgow Steam Packet Company, Glasgow, Dublin and Londonderry Steam Packet Company, Laird Line, British and Irish Steam Packet Company, Dublin and Morecambe Steamers, London and Northwestern Railway Company, Dublin Port and Docks Board, Landing Sheds and Transit Sheds of Palgrave Murphy and Company, Steamship Owners, Agents for Steamers from Mediterranean, Spain, Portugal, France, Belgium and Holland, and for animal transport and of additional mileage operated by the Dublin United Tramways Company Limited, to be covered by Grazier's fees. 
Positing what protasis would the contraction for such several schemes become a natural and necessary apodosis? Given a guarantee equal to the sum sought, the support by deed of gift and transfer vouchers during donor's lifetime or by bequest after donor's painless extinction of eminent financiers, Blum Pasha, Rothschild, Guggenheim, Hirsch, Montefiore, Morgan, Rockefeller, possessing fortunes in six figures, amassed during a successful life, and joining capital with opportunity, the thing required was done. What, eventually, would render him independent of such wealth? The independent discovery of a gold seam of inexhaustible ore. For what reason did he meditate on schemes so difficult of realisation? It was one of his axioms that similar meditations or the automatic relation to himself of a narrative concerning himself or tranquil recollection of the past when practised habitually before retiring for the night alleviated fatigue and produced as a result sound repose and renovated vitality. His justifications? As a physicist, he had learned that of the 70 years of complete human life, at least two-sevenths, viz. 20 years, passed in sleep. As a philosopher, he knew that at the termination of any allotted life, only an infinitesimal part of any person's desires has been realised. As a physiologist, he believed in the artificial application of malignant agencies, chiefly operative during somnolence. What did he fear? the committal of homicide or suicide during sleep by an aberration of the light of reason, the incommensurable categorical intelligence situated in the cerebral convolutions. What were habitually his final meditations? Of some one sole unique advertisement to cause passers to stop in wonder, a poster novelty with all extraneous accretions excluded, reduced to its simplest and most efficient terms, not exceeding the span of casual vision and congruous with the velocity of modern life. What did the first drawer unlocked contain? A Veer Foster's handwriting copybook, property of Millie, Millicent Bloom, certain pages of which bore diagram drawings marked Papley, which showed a large globular head with five hairs erect, two eyes in profile, the trunk full front with three large buttons, one triangular foot, two fading photographs of Queen Alexandra of England and of Maud Branscombe, actress and professional beauty. A Yuletide card, bearing on it a pictorial representation of a parasitic plant. The legend Mitzpah, the date Xmas 1892, the name of the senders from Mr and Mrs M. Comerford. The versicle, may this Yuletide bring to thee joy and peace and welcome glee. A butt of red, partly liquefied sealing wax, obtained from the stores department of Messrs Healy's Limited, 89, 90 and 91 Dame Street. A box containing the remainder of a gross of gilt Jane pen nibs obtained from same department of same firm. An old sand glass which rolled containing sand which rolled. A sealed prophecy, never unsealed, written by Leopold Bloom in 1886 concerning the consequences of the passing into law of William Ewart Gladstone's Home Rule Bill of 1886 never passed into law. A bizarre ticket, number 2004 of S. Kevin's Charity Fair, price sixpence, 100 prizes. An infantile epistle, dated small m, Monday, reading capital P, Papley, comma, capital H, how are you, note of interrogation, capital I, I am very well, full stop. New paragraph, signature with flourishes, capital M, Millie, no stop. A cameo brooch, property of Ellen Bloom, born Higgins, deceased. Three typewritten letters, addressee Henry Flower, care of P.O. Westland Row, addresser Martha Clifford, care of P.O. Dolphins Barn.
The transliterated name and address of the addresser of the three letters in reserved alphabetic, boustrophedontic, punctuated, quadrilinear, cryptogram, vowel suppressed, N, I, G, S, stroke, W, I, U, U, O, X, stroke, W, O, K, S, M, H, stroke, Y, I, M. A press cutting from an English weekly periodical, Modern Society. Subject, corporal chastisement in girls' schools. A pink ribbon which had festooned an Easter egg in the year 1899. Two partly uncoiled rubber preservatives with reserve pockets, purchased by post from Box 32 P.O. Charing Cross, London, W.C. One pack of one dozen cream-laid envelopes and faint-ruled notepaper, watermarked, now reduced by three some assorted Austrian-Hungarian coins, two coupons of the Royal and Privileged Hungarian Lottery, a low-power magnifying glass, two erotic photocards showing a buccal coition between nude senorita, rear presentation, superior position, and nude torero, fore presentation, inferior position, b anal violation by male religious, fully clothed, eyes abject, of female religious, partly clothed, eyes direct, purchased by post from Box 32, P.O. Charing Cross, London, W.C. A press cutting of recipe for renovation of old tan boots. A one-penny adhesive stamp, lavender of the reign of Queen Victoria. A chart of measurements of Leopold Bloom, compiled before, during and after two months of consecutive use of Sandow Whitley's pulley exerciser. Men's 15 shillings, athletes 20 shillings. Viz, chest 28 inches and 29 and a half inches. Biceps 9 inches and 10 inches, forearm 8 and a half and 9 inches, thigh 10 inches and 12 inches, calf 11 inches and 12 inches. One prospectus of the Wonder Worker, the world's greatest remedy for rectal complaints, direct from Wonder Worker, Coventry House, South Place, London, EC, addressed to Mrs. L. Bloom, with brief accompanying note commencing, Dear Madam. Quote the textual terms in which the prospectus claimed advantages for this thaumaturgic remedy. It heals and soothes while you sleep. In case of trouble in breaking wind, assists nature in the most formidable way, ensuring instant relief in discharge of gases, keeping parts clean and free natural action. An initial outlay of seven and six, making a new man of you and life worth living. Ladies find Wonder Worker especially useful, a pleasant surprise when they note delightful result, like a cool drink of fresh spring water on a sultry summer's day. Recommend it to your lady and gentleman friends. Lasts a lifetime. Insert long round end. Wonder Worker. Were there testimonials? Numerous. From clergyman, British naval officer, well-known author, city man, hospital nurse, lady, mother of five, absent-minded beggar. How did absent-minded beggars' concluding testimonial conclude? What a pity the government did not supply our men with wonder workers during the South African campaign. What a relief it would have been. What object did Bloom add to this collection of objects? A fourth typewritten letter received by Henry Flower, let HF, BLB, from Martha Clifford, find MC. What pleasant reflection accompanied this action? The reflection that... Apart from the letter in question, his magnetic face, form and address had been favourably received during the course of the preceding day by a wife, Mrs Josephine Breen, born Josie Powell, a nurse, Miss Callan, Christian name unknown, a maid, Gertrude, Gertie, family name unknown. What possibility suggested itself? 
The possibility of exercising virile power of fascination in the most immediate future after an expensive repast in a private apartment in the company of an elegant courtesan of corporal beauty, moderately mercenary, variously instructed, a lady by origin. What did the second drawer contain? Documents. The birth certificate of Leopold Paula Bloom, an endowment assurance policy of £500 in the Scottish Widows Assurance Society, intestated Millicent Millie Bloom, coming into force at 25 years, as with profit policy of £430, £462.10 and £500 at 60 years or death, 65 years or death, and death, respectively, or with profit policy paid up of £299.10, together with cash payment of £133.10 at option. A bank passbook issued by the Ulster Bank College Green Branch, showing statement of AC for half-year ending 31 December 1903, balance in depositors' favour £18.14 and six, £18.14 shillings and sixpence sterling. Net personality. Certificate of possession of £900 Canadian 4% inscribed government stock, free of stamp duty. Dockets of the Catholic Cemetery's Glasnevin Committee relative to a grave plot purchased. A local press cutting concerning change of name by deed poll. Quote the textual terms of this notice. I, Rudolf Virag, now resident at number 52 Clanbrazel Street, Dublin, formerly of Zambethli in the Kingdom of Hungary, hereby give notice that I have assumed and intend henceforth upon all occasions and at all times to be known by the name of Rudolf Bloom. What other objects relative to Rudolf Bloom, born Virag, were in the second drawer? An indistinct daguerreotype of Rudolf Virag and his father Leopold Virag, executed in the year 1852 in the portrait atelier of their respectively first and second cousin Stefan Virag of Sesfervar, Hungary. An ancient Haggadah book in which a pair of horn-rimmed convex spectacles inserted marked the passage of thanksgiving in the ritual prayers for Pesach, Passover. A photocard of the Queen's Hotel Ennis, proprietor Rudolf Bloom, an envelope addressed to my dear son Leopold. What fractions of phrases did the lecture of those five whole words evoke? Tomorrow will be a week that I received. It is no use, Leopold, to be. With your dear mother. That is not more to stand. To her. All for me is out. Be kind to Athos, Leopold. My dear son, always of me, das hurts. Gott dein. What reminiscences of a human subject suffering from progressive melancholia did these objects evoke in Bloom? An old man, widower, unkempt hair in bed, with head covered, sighing. An infirm dog, Athos. Aconite, resorted to by increasing doses of grains and scruples as a palliative of recrudescent neuralgia. The face in death of a septuagenarian suicide by poison. Why did Bloom experience a sentiment of remorse? Because in immature impatience he had treated with disrespect certain beliefs and practices. As? The prohibition of the use of flesh meat and milk at one meal the hebdomadary symposium of incoordinately abstract, perfervidly concrete mercantile co-ex-religionist ex-compatriots, the circumcision of male infants, the supernatural character of Judaic scripture, the ineffability of the tetragrammaton.
the sanctity of the Sabbath. How did these beliefs and practices now appear to him? Not more rational than they had then appeared, not less rational than other beliefs and practices now appeared. What first reminiscence had he of Rudolf Blum, deceased? Rudolf Blum, deceased, narrated to his son Leopold Blum, aged six, a retrospective arrangement of migrations and settlements in and between Dublin, London, Florence, Milan, Vienna, Budapest, Zambathli, with statements of satisfaction, his grandfather having seen Maria Theresa, Empress of Austria, Queen of Hungary, with commercial advice, having taken care of Pence, the pounds having taken care of themselves. Leopold Bloom, aged six, had accompanied these narrations by constant consultation of a geographical map of Europe, political, and by suggestions for the establishment of affiliated business premises in the various centres mentioned. Had time equally but differently obliterated the memory of these migrations in narrator and listener? In narrator, by the excess of years and in consequence of the use of narcotic toxin. In listener, by the access of years and in consequence of the action of distraction upon vicarious experiences. What idiosyncrasies of the narrator were concomitant products of amnesia? Occasionally he ate without having previously removed his hat. Occasionally he drank voraciously the juice of gooseberry fool from an inclined plate. Occasionally he removed from his lips the traces of food by means of a lacerated envelope or other accessible fragment of paper. What two phenomena of senescence were more frequent? The myopic digital calculation of coins, eructation consequent upon repletion. What object offered partial consolation for these reminiscences? The endowment policy, the bank passbook, the certificate of the possession of scrip. Reduce Bloom by cross-multiplication of reverses of fortune from which these supports protected him and by elimination of all positive values to a negligible, negative, irrational, unreal quantity. Successively, in descending helotic order... Poverty, that of the outdoor hawker of imitation jewellery, the dun for the recovery of bad and doubtful debts, the poor rate and deputy cess collector. Mendicancy, that of the fraudulent bankrupt with negligible assets paying one and fourpence in the pound, sandwich man, distributor of throwaways, nocturnal vagrant, insinuating sycophant, maimed sailor, blind stripling, superannuated bailiff's man, ma-feast, lick-plate, spoil-sport, pick-thank, eccentric public laughing-stock seated on bench of public park under discarded perforated umbrella. Destitution, the inmate of Old Man's House, Royal Hospital Kilmainham, the inmate of Simpson's Hospital for reduced but respectable men permanently disabled by gout or want of sight. Nadir of Misery, the aged, impotent, disfranchised, rate-supported, moribund, lunatic pauper. With which attendant indignities? The unsympathetic indifference of previously amiable females, the contempt of muscular males, the acceptance of fragments of bread, the simulated ignorance of casual acquaintances, the latration of illegitimate, unlicensed vagabond dogs, the infantile discharge of decomposed vegetable missiles worth little or nothing or less than nothing. By what could such a situation be precluded? By disease, change of state... By departure, change of place. Which, preferably? The latter, by the line of least resistance. What considerations rendered it not entirely undesirable? Constant cohabitation impeding mutual toleration of personal defects. The habit of independent purchase increasingly cultivated. The necessity to counteract by impermanent sojourn the permanence of arrest. What considerations rendered it not irrational? The parties concerned, uniting, had increased and multiplied, which being done, offspring produced and educed to maturity, the parties, if now disunited, were obliged to reunite for increase and multiplication, which was absurd, to form by reunion the original couple of uniting parties, which was impossible. 
What considerations rendered it desirable? The attractive character of certain localities in Ireland and abroad, as represented in general geographical maps of polychrome design or in special ordnance survey charts by employment of scale numerals and hatchers. In Ireland? The cliffs of Moher, the windy wilds of Connemara, Loch Ney with submerged petrified city, the Giant's Causeway, Fort Camden and Fort Carlisle, the Golden Vale of Tipperary, the Islands of Arran, the pastures of Royal Meath, Bridget's Elm in Kildare, the Queen's Island Shipyard in Belfast, the Salmon Leap, the Lakes of Killarney. Abroad? Ceylon, with Spice Gardens supplying tea to Thomas Kernan, agent for Pulbrook, Robertson and Co., 2 Mincing Lane, London EC, 5 Dame Street, Dublin. Jerusalem, the Holy City, with Mosque of Omar and Gate of Damascus, goal of aspiration. The Straits of Gibraltar, the unique birthplace of Marian Tweedy. The Parthenon, containing statues, nude Grecian divinities. The Wall Street money market, which controlled international finance. The Plaza de Taurus at La Linea, Spain, where O'Hara of the Camerons had slain the bull. Niagara, over which no human being had passed with impunity. The land of the Eskimos, eaters of soap. The forbidden country of Tibet, from which no traveller returns. The Bay of Naples, to see which was to die. The Dead Sea. Under what guidance? Following what signs? At sea, septentrional. By night, the pole star, located at the point of intersection of the right line from Beta to Alpha in Ursa Major, produced and divided externally at Omega, and the hypotenuse of the right-angle triangle formed by the line Alpha-Omega, so produced, and the line Alpha-Delta of Ursa Major. On land, meridional. Bispherical moon revealed in imperfect varying phases of lunation through the posterior interstice of the imperfectly occluded skirt of a carnous negligent perambulating female, a pillar of the cloud by day. What public advertisement would divulge the occultation of the departed? Five pound reward, lost, stolen or strayed from his residence, Seven Eccles Street, missing gent about forty, answering to the name of Bloom, Leopold, Poldy, height five feet, nine and a half inches, full build, olive complexion, may have since grown a beard, when last seen was wearing a black suit. Above some will be paid for information leading to his discovery. What universal binomial denominations would be his as entity and non-entity? Assumed by any or known to none. Every man or no man. What tributes his? Honour and gifts of strangers, the friends of every man, and nymph immortal, beauty, the bride of no man. Would the departed never, nowhere, know how reappear? Ever he would wander, self-compelled, to the extreme limit of his cometary orbit, beyond the fixed stars and variable suns and telescopic planets, astronomical waifs and strays, to the extreme boundary of space, passing from land to land among peoples amid events. Somewhere, imperceptibly, he would hear and somehow reluctantly, sun-compelled, obey the summons of recall. Whence, disappearing from the constellation of the Northern Crown, he would somehow reappear, reborn, above Delta in the constellation of Cassiopeia, and after incalculable aeons of peregrination, return, an estranged avenger, a wreaker of justice on malefactors, a dark crusader, a sleeper awakened, with financial resources by supposition surpassing those of Rothschild or of the Silver King. What would render such return irrational? An unsatisfactory equation between an exodus and return in time through reversible space and an exodus and return in space through irreversible time. What play of forces inducing inertia rendered departure undesirable? 
The lateness of the hour rendering procrastinatory, the obscurity of the night rendering invisible, the uncertainty of thoroughfares rendering perilous, the necessity for repose obviating movement, the proximity of an occupied bed obviating research, the anticipation of warmth, human, tempered with coolness, linen, obviating desire and rendering desirable, the statue of Narcissus, sound without echo, desired desire. What advantages were possessed by an occupied as distinct from an unoccupied bed? The removal of nocturnal solitude, the superior quality of human, mature female, to inhuman hot water jar calefaction, the stimulation of matutinal contact, the economy of mangling done on the premises in the case of trousers accurately folded and placed lengthways between the spring mattress, striped, and the woolen mattress, biscuit section. What past consecutive causes before rising pre-apprehended of accumulated fatigue did Bloom, before rising, silently recapitulate? The preparation of breakfast, burnt offering, intestinal congestion and premeditative defection, holy of holies. The bath, right of John, the funeral, right of Samuel, the advertisement of Alexander Keyes, Urim and Thummim. The unsubstantial lunch, right of Melchizedek. The visit to museum and national library, holy place. The book hunt along Bedford Row. Merchant's Arch, Wellington Quay, Simcath, Torah. The music in the Ormond Hotel, Shira Shirim. The altercation with the truculent troglodyte in Bernard Kiernan's premises, Holocaust. A blank period of time, including a car drive, a visit to a house of mourning, a leave-taking, wilderness... The eroticism produced by feminine exhibitionism, right of Onan. The prolonged delivery of Mrs. Minna Purifoy, heave offering. The visit to the disorderly house of Mrs. Bella Cohen, 82 Tyrone Street, Law, and subsequent brawl and chance medley in Beaver Street, Armageddon. Nocturnal perambulation to and from the cabman's shelter, Butt Bridge, atonement. What self-imposed enigma did Bloom about to rise in order to go so as to conclude, lest he should not conclude, involuntarily apprehend? The cause of a brief, sharp, unforeseen, heard, loud, lone crack emitted by the insentient material of a strain-veined timber table. What self-involved enigma did Bloom, risen, going, gathering multicoloured, multiform, multitudinous garments, voluntarily apprehending, not comprehend? Who was Macintosh? What self-evident enigma... Pondered with desultory constancy during thirty years did Bloom now, having affected natural obscurity by the extinction of artificial light, silently, suddenly comprehend. Where was Moses when the candle went out? What imperfections in a perfect day did Bloom, walking silently, successively enumerate? A provisional failure to obtain renewal of an advertisement, to obtain a certain quantity of tea from Thomas Kernan, agent for Pulbrook, Robertson & Co., 5 Dame Street, Dublin, and 2 Mincing Lane, London, E.C., to certify the presence or absence of posterior rectal orifice in the case of Hellenic female divinities, to obtain admission, gratuitous or paid, to the performance of Leah by Mrs. Bandman Palmer at the Gaiety Theatre, 46, 47, 48, 49, South King Street. What impression of an absent face did Bloom, arrested silently, recall? The face of her father, the late Major Brian Cooper Tweedy, Royal Dublin Fusiliers of Gibraltar and Rehoboth, Dolphins Bar. What recurrent impressions of the same were possible by the hypothesis? Retreating at the terminus of the Great Northern Railway, Amiens Street, with constant uniform acceleration along parallel lines meeting at infinity, if produced. Along parallel lines reproduced from infinity with constant uniform retardation at the terminus of Great Northern Railway, Amiens Street, returning.
What miscellaneous effects of female personal wearing apparel were perceived by him? A pair of new inodorous half-silk black ladies' hose, a pair of new violet garters, a pair of outsized ladies' drawers of India mull cut on generous lines, redolent of apoponax, jessamine and Murati's Turkish cigarettes, and containing a long, bright steel safety pin, folded curvilinear, a camisole of Batiste with thin lace border, an accordion underskirt of blue silk moirette, all these objects being disposed irregularly on the top of a rectangular trunk, quadruple battened, having capped corners with multicoloured labels, initialed on its foreside in white lettering, BCT, Brian Cooper Tweedy. What impersonal objects were perceived? A commode, one leg fractured, totally covered by square criton cutting, apple design on which rested a lady's black straw hat. Orange-keyed ware, bought of Henry Price, basket, fancy goods, chinaware and ironmongery manufacturer, 21, 22, 23 Moore Street, disposed irregularly on the washstand and floor, and consisting of basin, soap dish and brush tray on the washstand together, pitcher and night article on the floor separate. Bloom's acts? He deposited the articles of clothing on a chair, removed his remaining articles of clothing, took from beneath the bolster at the head of the bed a folded long white nightshirt, inserted his head and arms into the proper apertures of the nightshirt, removed a pillow from the head to the foot of the bed, prepared the bed linen accordingly, and entered the bed. How? With circumspection, as invariably when entering an abode, his own or not his own, with solicitude, the snake-spiral springs of the mattress being old, the brass quoits and pendant vapor radii loose and tremulous under stress and strain, prudently as entering a lair or ambush of lust or adder, lightly the less to disturb, reverently the bed of conception and of birth, of consummation of marriage and of breach of marriage, of sleep and of death. What did his limbs, when gradually extended, encounter? New clean bed linen, additional odours, the presence of a human form, female, hers, the imprint of a human form, male, not his, some crumbs, some flakes of potted meat recooked, which he removed. If he had smiled, why would he have smiled? To reflect that each one who enters imagines himself to be the first to enter, whereas he is always the last term of a preceding series, even if the first term of a succeeding one each imagining himself to be first, last, only, and alone, whereas he is neither first, nor last, nor only, nor alone, in a series originating in and repeated to infinity. What preceding series? Assuming Mulvey to be the first term of his series, Penrose, Bartle Darcy, Professor Goodwin, Julius Mastiansky, John Henry Menton, Father Bernard Corrigan, a farmer at the Royal Dublin Society's horse show, Maggot O'Reilly, Matthew Dillon, Valentine Blake Dillon, Lord Mayor of Dublin, Christopher Callanan, Lenehan, an Italian organ grinder, an unknown gentleman in the Gaiety Theatre, Benjamin Dollard, Simon Dedalus, Andrew Pisser-Burke, Joseph Cuff, Wisdom Healy, Alderman John Hooper, Dr Francis Brady, Father Sebastian of Mount Argus, a bootblack at the General Post Office, Hugh E. Blazes Boylan, and so each, and so on to no last term. What were his reflections concerning the last member of this series and late occupant of the bed? Reflections on his vigour, a bounder, corporal proportion, a bill sticker, commercial ability, a bester, impressionability, a boaster. 
Why, for the observer, impressionability in addition to vigour, corporal proportion and commercial ability? Because he had observed with augmenting frequency in the preceding members of the same series the same concupiscence, inflammably transmitted first with alarm, then with understanding, then with desire, finally with fatigue, with alternating symptoms of epicene comprehension and apprehension. With what antagonistic sentiments were his subsequent reflections affected? Envy, jealousy, abnegation, equanimity. Envy? Of a bodily and mental male organism specially adapted for the superincumbent posture of energetic human copulation and energetic piston and cylinder movement necessary for the complete satisfaction of a constant but not acute concupiscence resident in a bodily and mental female organism, passive but not obtuse. Jealousy? Because a nature, full and volatile in its free state, was alternately the agent and reagent of attraction. Because action between agents and reagents at all instants varied, with inverse proportion of increase and decrease, with incessant circular extension and radial re-entrance. Because the controlled contemplation of the fluctuation of attraction produced, if desired, a fluctuation of pleasure. Abnegation? In virtue of A... Acquaintance initiated in September 1903 in the establishment of George Messias, merchant, tailor and outfitter, 5 Eden Key. B. Hospitality extended and received in kind, reciprocated and reappropriated in person. C. Comparative youth subject to impulses of ambition and magnanimity, colleagual altruism and amorous egoism. D. Extra-racial attraction, intra-racial inhibition, supra-racial prerogative. E. An imminent provincial musical tour, common current expenses, net proceeds divided. Equanimity? As natural as any and every natural act of a nature expressed or understood, executed in natured nature by natural creatures, in accordance with his, her and their natured natures of dissimilar similarity. As not as calamitous as a cataclysmic annihilation of the planet in consequence of collision with a dark sun, as less reprehensible than theft, highway robbery, cruelty to children and animals, obtaining money under false pretenses, forgery, embezzlement, misappropriation of public money, betrayal of public trust, malingering, mayhem, corruption of minors, criminal libel, blackmail, contempt of court, arson, treason, felony, mutiny on the high seas, trespass, burglary, jailbreaking, practice of unnatural vice, desertion from armed forces in the field, Perjury, poaching, usury, intelligence with the king's enemies, impersonation, criminal assault, manslaughter, willful and premeditated murder. As not more abnormal than all other altered processes of adaptation to altered conditions of existence, resulting in a reciprocal equilibrium between the bodily organism and its attendant circumstances, foods, beverages, acquired habits, indulged inclinations, significant disease as more than inevitable, irreparable. Why more abnegation than jealousy? Less envy than equanimity? From outrage matrimony to outrage adultery, there arose naught but outrage copulation. Yet the matrimonial violator of the matrimonially violated had not been outraged by the adulterous violator of the adulterously violated. What retribution, if any? Assassination, never, as two wrongs did not make one right. Duel by combat? No. Divorce? Not now. Exposure by mechanical artifice, automatic bed, or individual testimony, concealed ocular witness? Not yet. 
Suit for damages by legal influence or simulation of assault with evidence of injury sustained, self-inflicted. Not impossibly. If any positively connivance introduction of emulation, material a prosperous rival agency of publicity, moral a successful rival agent of intimacy. Depreciation, alienation, humiliation, separation protecting the one separated from the other, protecting separator from both. By what reflections did he, a conscious reactor against the void incertitude, justify to himself his sentiments? The preordained frangibility of the hymen, the presupposed intangibility of the thing in itself, the incongruity and disproportion between the self-prolonging tension of the thing proposed to be done and the self-abbreviating relaxation of the thing done, the fallaciously inferred debility of the female, the muscularity of the male, the variations of ethical codes the natural grammatical transition by inversion involving no alteration of sense of an aorist preterite proposition passed as masculine subject, monosyllabic, onomatopoeic, transitive verb with direct feminine object from the active voice into its correlative aorist preterite proposition passed as feminine subject, auxiliary verb and quasi-monosyllabic, onomatopoeic, past participle with complementary masculine agent in the passive voice the continued product of seminators by generation, the continual production of semen by distillation, the futility of triumph or protest or vindication, the inanity of extolled virtue, the lethargy of nescient matter, the apathy of the stars. In what final satisfaction did these antagonistic sentiments and reflections reduced to their simplest forms converge? Satisfaction at the ubiquity in eastern and western terrestrial hemispheres, in all habitable lands and islands explored or unexplored, the land of the midnight sun, the islands of the blessed, the isles of Greece, the land of promise, of adipose posterior female hemispheres, redolent of milk and honey and of excretory sanguine and seminal warmth, reminiscent of secular families of curves of amplitude, insusceptible of moods of impression or of contrarieties of expression, expressive of mute, immutable, mature animality. The visible signs of anti-satisfaction? An approximate erection, a solicitor's adversion, a gradual elevation, a tentative revelation, a silent contemplation. Then? He kissed the plump, mellow, yellow, smellow melons of her rump on each plump, melonous hemisphere in their mellow, yellow furrow with obscure, prolonged, provocative, melon-smellonous oscillation. The visible signs of post-satisfaction. A silent contemplation, a tentative velation, a gradual abasement, a solicitous aversion, approximate erection. What followed this silent action? Somnolent invocation, less somnolent recognition, incipient excitation, catechetical interrogation. With what modifications did the narrator apply to this interrogation? Negative he omitted to mention the clandestine correspondence between Martha Clifford and Henry Flower, the public altercation at, in, and in the vicinity of the licensed premises of Bernard Kiernan and Co. Limited, 8, 9, and 10 Little Britain Street, the erotic provocation and response thereto caused by the exhibitionism of Gertrude Gertie, surname unknown. Positive? He included mention of a performance by Mrs. Bandman Palmer of Lear at the Gaiety Theatre, 46, 47, 48, 49, South King Street, an invitation to supper at Wynne's, Murphy's Hotel, 35, 36 and 37, Lower Abbey Street, a volume of pecaminous pornographical tendency entitled Sweets of Sin, Anonymous, 
author a gentleman of fashion. A temporary concussion caused by a falsely calculated movement in the course of post-senal gymnastic display. The victim, since completely recovered, being Stephen Dedalus, professor and author, eldest surviving son of Simon Dedalus, of no fixed occupation. An aeronautical feat executed by him, narrator, in the presence of a witness, the professor and author aforesaid, with promptitude of decision and gymnastic flexibility. Was the narration otherwise unaltered by modifications? Absolutely. Which event or person emerged as the salient point of his narration? Stephen Dedalus, professor and author. What limitations of activity and inhibitions of conjugal rights were perceived by listener and narrator concerning themselves during the course of this intermittent and increasingly more laconic narration? By the listener, a limitation of fertility, inasmuch as marriage had been celebrated one calendar month after the 18th anniversary of her birth, 8 September 1870, viz. 8 October, and consummated on the same date with female issue born 15 June 1889, having been anticipatorily consummated on the 10 September of the same year, and complete carnal intercourse with ejaculation of semen within the natural female organ having last taken place five weeks previous, viz. 27 November 1893, to the birth on 29 December 1893 of second and only male issue, deceased 9 January 1894, aged 11 days. There remained a period of 10 years, 5 months and 18 days during which carnal intercourse had been incomplete without ejaculation of semen within the natural female organ. By the narrator, a limitation of activity, mental and corporal, inasmuch as complete mental intercourse between himself and the listener had not taken place since the consummation of puberty indicated by catamenic hemorrhage of the female issue of narrator and listener, 15 September 1903. There remained a period of nine months and one day, during which, in consequence of a pre-established natural comprehension in incomprehension between the consummated females, listener and issue, complete corporal liberty of action had been circumscribed. How? By various reiterated feminine interrogation, concerning the masculine destination whither, the place where, the time at which, the duration for which, the object with which, in the case of temporary absences, projected or effected. What moved visibly above the listener's and the narrator's invisible thoughts? The upcast reflection of a lamp and shade, an inconstant series of concentric circles of varying gradations of light and shadow. In what directions did listener and narrator lie? Listener, S-E by E, narrator, N-W by W, on the 53rd parallel of latitude N and 6th meridian of longitude W, at an angle of 45 degrees to the terrestrial equator. In what state of rest or motion? At rest relatively to themselves and to each other, in motion being each and both carried westward, forward and rearward respectively by the proper perpetual motion of the earth through ever-changing tracks of never-changing space. In what posture? Listener, reclined semilaterally, left, left hand under head, right leg extended in a straight line and resting on left leg, flexed in the attitude of Geotellus, fulfilled, recumbent, big with seed. Narrator, reclined laterally, left, with right and left legs flexed, the index finger and thumb of the right hand resting on the bridge of the nose in the attitude depicted on a snapshot photograph made by Percy Apjohn, the child-man weary, the man-child in the womb. Womb? Weary? 
He rests. He has traveled. With? Sinbad the sailor and Tinbad the tailor and Jinbad the jailer and Whinbad the whaler and Ninbad the nailer and Finbad the failer and Binbad the bailer and Pinbad the paler and Minbad the mailer and Hinbad the hailer and Rinbad the railer and Dinbad the kailer and Vinbad the quailer and Linbad the Yaler, and Zinbad the Thaler. When? Going to a dark bed, there was a square round Sinbad the Sailor, Rock's Hawk's Egg, in the night of the bed of all the Hawks of the Rocks, of Darkenbad the Bright Day. Where? 